My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every year, compliance regulations change thousands of times. And every year, ADP makes thousands of seamless platform updates so businesses can focus on everything else, like running their business. Grow stronger with ADP. HR, talent, time, and payroll. Hey, what's up? It's your man Carlos Miller of the 85 South Show. Do me a favor. Make sure you check out The Black Market, hosted by me, only on the 85 South Show feed. Subscribe to the 85 South Show to hear and tune in to the black market. Hear amazing interviews with entrepreneurs, creatives, and thought leaders, people who are doing amazing things in the black community. Listen to the black market on iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Peace to the planet. Charlemagne the God here. And you don't want to miss Hello Somebody with Senator Nina Turner on the Black Effect Podcast Network. I love Hello Somebody simply because I love Nina Turner. She's fearless. I'm Nina Turner, hell-raising humanitarian, sister in the struggle, and recovering elected official. Listen to Hello Somebody every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Money Making Conversations. It's the show that shares the secrets of success experienced firsthand by marketing and branding expert Rashawn McDonald. I will know. He's given me advice on many occasions, and in case you didn't notice, I'm not broke. You know he'll be interviewing celebrity CEOs, entrepreneurs, and industry decision makers. It's what he likes to do. It's what he likes to share. Now it's time to hear from my man, Rashawn McDonald. Money Making Conversations. Here we go. Welcome to Money Making Conversation. I'm your host, Rashawn McDonald. It is time to start reading other people's success stories. And like I always say every week, start writing your own. I always tell you, if you have gifts, leave with your gifts. If you have passion, leave with your passion. And don't let your age, friends, family, or coworkers stop you from planning or living your dreams. On Money Making Conversation, I have a lot of interviews with celebrities, CEOs, entrepreneurs, and people I like to call industry decision makers. My next guest is Gina Yashare. Gina's releasing her first book, the memoir, Cack Handed. The British comedian of Nigerian heritage is the co-creator, co-executive producer, writer, and actress in the CBS hit series, Bob Hop's 
Abishola. Her book, Cack Handed, chronicles her odyssey, or journey, we can use the other term because she's funny, and we're going to talk about her humor, to America, and breaking into Hollywood, and this lively and humorous memoir, and this, I want to say is uh, also um, informative. We should put that in there because it talks about history. Gina Yashare has appeared on appeared on countless television shows, both in the UK and the US. She's on her way to being one of the great stars from Britain. And guess what? We share something. She performed with Def Comedy Jam and is the only British comedian to perform with Def Comedy Jam. I also performed with Def Comedy Jam. Please welcome to Money Making Conversation, Gina Yashare. Nice to meet you, Michelle. How you doing, my friend? Uh, let's, let's start with the wonderful. names. Let's start with the names because that means, you know, my name's Rashawn. And, you know, as I was coming up through the business, I had so many people say my name different. And sometimes I let that slide because I just wanted to, I just wanted stage time. I wanted somebody to let me in the front door. So if you call me Rue, <laughs> Russian, uh, uh, Rasheen, I, I went with it, you know. And then it came to a point where Rashawn was my name. And I and I held to that. And then I corrected people. Talk about yeah. your journey with your last name. And also, because I know it's important to talk about that because people don't understand that it comes with respect. It comes with also statue. Because once people start saying it right, that means you're elevating your game. Talk about your exactly, last name. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, when I, my, obviously, my name is Nigerian. My parents are Ni- uh, from Benin City in Nigeria. And my name is Yashere, and that's how it's pronounced, Yashere. And it's actually spelt I-Y-A-S-H-E-R-E. But when I started doing comedy, uh, they kept mispronouncing the name and pronouncing the I, which is almost silent. Mm-hmm. And so the, I uh, so I dropped the I from my name. So wow. Yashere. Because the I is almost it's Yashere, the I is silent. So I dropped the I <laughs> to help people pronounce, pronounce it properly. And they still mispronounce it for a long time. I get called Yashir, Yashu. Like, oh, so I have to make, I, I've, I've got this thing now. I go, it's Yashere. Think Yash. Hooray! And people, you know, so I, t- I can tell who has done their research before the show when they pronounce my name correctly. You did good, Michelle. You did good. I like that. I like that. I like that. Hooray! I like that. Hooray! I like that. I like that. I like that. I like that. It's almost like cheering your name because exactly. you are. Exactly. You are a breath of fresh air. You know, you are a breath of fresh air. And I, we want to talk about a couple of things. We want to talk about the, because the, I was a, a sitcom writer. You know, I did, uh, I did, of course, I broke in with Steve Harvey and me and the boys on ABC. Then I did Robert Townsend Parenthood and Sister, Sister with the Twins, T and Tamara Maury. Oh, wow. Now, Fantastic. And then the Jamie Foxx series. And I also did Monique series, The Parkers. And so I, so we, I, I wanted to do this interview because of the fact that I felt we related a lot. But you just came yeah. from British and you have a Nigerian background, but we are both people of color. Which means that we also experience racism, also people passing over, ignoring our talents. Talk about mm-hmm. your journey a little bit from the writing side, the sitcom side, to get your story, your show, that you're co-executive producer, that you co-created on the air on CBS. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I never considered myself a TV writer. I, I was like, I'm a stand-up comic. That's what I do. That's what I love. That's what I'm going to do forever. And I was hoping to become successful as that, hugely successful. I mean, I'm successful as a stand-up comic. I've been mm-hmm. for quite a while. But that was all I wanted to do. I've never been crazy ambitious. Right. Uh, my dream was to be the best friend on someone else's sitcom <laughs> and use that stardom to sell out bigger comedy clubs and arenas. And that's all I wanted to do. Right. Uh, People were offering me gigs for years to write on TV shows. And I was like, nope, I don't want a day job. I don't want to work for anybody else. 
Uh, I like working for myself. I don't, and I'd heard horror stories of the politics and things that go on in, in writers' rooms. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I want no parts of that. So mm-hmm. I avoided writing on a TV show from all my career. This show came out of the blue. I just got a call out of the blue but from Chuck Lorre. My agent got a call saying, Chuck Lorre of Big Bang Theory, Two and a Half Men, Mike and Molly, <laughs> Sheldon. He wants to meet you. And I was like, Okay, and I was living in New York at the time, very happily doing my stand-up. I mm-hmm. lived in LA for a few years, struggled to make money, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to New York because as a stand-up comic, I can make a living in New York. I'm mm-hmm. going to New York. Mm-hmm. So I was living happily in New York for six years, had no plans to come back to Los mm-hmm. Angeles. Mm-hmm. So I had this meeting, I flew over to LA to meet Chuck. I mean, originally I was like, well, they, they, they're flying me first class, right? I've just come off a long tour. Uh, <laughs> they just fly me first class, and my agent was like, uh... Uh, they don't fly people first class because it's just for meeting. And I was like, well, then I'm not going. <laughs> there you go. So basically, I knew my worth from day one. I was mm-hmm. like, if they really want to meet me, mm-hmm. I've Googled Chuck Lorre. I've Googled Warner Brothers. I see how much money they got. They could afford a first class ticket. So I held out for that. Love it. And they did. They flew me first class for this meeting. And I walked into a meeting with Chuck Lorre. And basically, he was like... <clears throat> Uh, I'm trying to make this show. I love Billy Gardell, who I made Michael Molly with. I want to do another show with him, but this time I don't. I don't want. I want the protagonist, the female protagonist, to be a Nigerian woman. Wow. I was so. I, and obviously, we're, we're three white guys because it was Chuck Lorre, Eddie uh, Gorodetsky, and Al Higgins who were his main two collaborators on a lot of his stuff. And he was like, "We're three white guys. We need you to sort of consult on all things African." Now. In, the, in my head, I was like, what? I, I was not feeling it at all. I was very suspicious. I was like, this feels exploitative. I've seen, you know, I've had ideas of mine stolen before. So I was not, I was not into it at all. But in the room, I was like, okay, interesting. Sounds interesting. Let me think about it. And I left and I called my agent and I was like, I don't want to do this. This, this sounds weird to me. Uh, they want me to consult on all things African. It sounds weird. It sounds racist. Don't want to yes. do it. Mm-hmm. But basically, my I have friends and family who will call me up and tell me when I'm being a, an idiot. And right. my brother called me from London and screamed at me for two hours. My best friend called me from London, screamed at me for another two hours. I'm like, this is an opportunity. You complain about the industry and how you're not authentically portrayed. And now you've got an opportunity to do this and you're turning it down. And I was like, you know what? You're right. So I stayed in a room with Chuck and Alan Eddy and we knocked out this pilot for the show. And I said to them, if I'm doing the show, it's going to be authentic. I, we want Nigerian actors to play a lot of the roles, you know, because when you watch TV and movies with Africans, the accents are always wrong. America seems to see Africa as a country and not a continent. Yes. There's a, lots of different countries, different languages, different religions, different traditions, different styles of dress, different everything. So I was like, if we're going to do this, I want it to be authentic. We're going to... I'm going to pick the tribe. I'm going to pick the language. I'm going to make sure the actors, uh, at least most of the actors, are authentic. So we get that vibe, so Nigerians can watch it and and enjoy it and know that there's a Nigerian behind the scenes making sure. <laughs> I love it, Gina. I love it. So, and they were willing to listen. So I sat in a room and we we wrote this pilot, and I based a lot of the characters on members of my family, my mother, and a lot of the stories in the show are based on my stand-up and based on my family. And that's how I got into I didn't know if I could do this writing thing. I didn't know. I was like... You're fantastic at it. A year, years as a stand-up, I knew 
how to build the characters. I knew where the jokes were. And basically the rest of it, I picked up and learned as much as I could along the way. And that's how I got into it. <laughs> well, this beautiful, Gina. I'm talking to Gina Yashare. She's the co-creator, co-executive producer of this hit CBS series, Bob Hawks, Abishola. Now, I'm going to just tell you right now, you know, being in a writer's room with sitcoms, you know, and you were not wrong in your feelings. Somebody mm-hmm. comes in, they're white, and, and they're telling you they want you to be the the official guide or voice for their African their African Nigerian character. Right there, I'm like, really? Okay, who is this a joke? Really? So I felt you, but see, they were right too because they said, well, go back and ask more questions because this is, you know, Chuck Lorre, you know, Big Bang Theory. The guy that, the guy is super rich. We all know that, okay? And so, and so, and so he really is. He really is. And so, and that's just a, you know, uh, uh, two and a half men, just a number of series he's done over the years. Cause Barbara Laurie has been around as long as I've been doing sitcoms back in 1992. I've been writing those sitcoms. So when the show Bob Hart's, Bob Hart's Abishola came about and you did the pilot, did you ask for any additional writers of color on staff? Or how did that work out? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I said to them, look, here's the thing. Uh, you've discovered me, but there's a lot of me's out there. Wow. And uh, if we're going to make this show authentic, we can't be dealing having a room full of the same old white guys that you've been working with for years. Yes. So uh, I wanted to make sure we've got black writers in the room. But what I did, I did, I circumvented the normal way of trying to force them to take on black writers. What I would do was, uh, I'm, obviously I'm a stand-up comic, so I'd book a comedy club and I'd be headlining. And I put my black friends on the shows and mm. then invite Chuck and the guys to come to the shows. Yes, yes. So yeah. I, I invited them shows and I, I didn't tell my friends what I was doing because I didn't want them to be nervous. And I'd just go, yeah, just come and open this show for me. I'm headlining. Come and do 20 minutes up in front of me. So I invited my friends onto the show and put them on the shows. And then I invited Chuck and Alan Eddy to my comedy shows. Mm-hmm. And whenever they went, oh, Oh, we like that person. Uh, she's very funny. We really liked her. And I go, we're really good because she also writes. <laughs> I love you. Then, I love you. So I then set up meetings between these comedians that they liked and them. And that's how I got black, black writers on the show. So I got Gloria Bigelow, who is a stand-up comic in LA. That's how I got her on the show. I, I put her on my comedy night. They liked her. I was like, well, she writes. And I put them together. They had a meeting. They loved her. And now she has been a writer from day one on the show. And that's how we did. And uh, then we went out and looked for young Nigerian writers and young black writers to put in the room. So that's, you know, I insisted that the room has to reflect the show. And they were open to it. They were open to it, which is fantastic. I don't want to be the only black writer in the room fighting. I need other black writers and I need women as well. I need a nice mixed room. And that's what we did. So I'm very proud of that. uh, that. And also when we were casting the show, I made sure that I sat in all the auditions. Mm -hmm. So when those black actors walked into a room, and saw me sitting there, they knew that they were not going to be asked to do any kind of coonery. You know right. what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, the, the, the thing that came up to me afterwards and, yeah. and said, it was so good to see you in the room because it made us, it put us at ease immediately. Hey, Gina, I really, people need to understand the process that you're going through. And being a person who's involved in sitcoms, right there, yeah. it can lead to stupid jokes. It can move to, I remember when Steve Harvey was doing sitcom, uh, Me and the Boys on his first sitcom. For some reason, you know, whenever he would just let out a loud scream, ah! then the audience in the stands would laugh. 
And so mm-hmm. the writers in the room suddenly will create moments. Won't you scream here? Won't you scream here? He said, why? Because the audience laughs. He said, that's not me. That was just a moment that happened. And mm-hmm. so, so people you need, and plus I love the fact, Gina, that you said, hey, I want more than my voice. Because sometimes you don't want to be the person that leads everybody down this one line. And then you become an expert when you're really not. You're just mm-hmm. a talented person who lives this particular life and you need support. And that's mm-hmm. what the writer's room is about, especially in sitcoms, because it's usually about just give people background information by 10 to 12 writers in a sitcom room because mm-hmm. you you pitch jokes, you pitch storylines. And I always tell people, and Gina will agree with this, you will write a script and you may think that's an Emmy winning script. You mm-hmm. give that script to the writer's room and the only thing that's probably left on that script is the name of the script and your name. <laughs> Am I right, Gina? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We've written stuff and then we'll go back in and it may change 100%. But the basic premise premise is there and we all pitch in to make it better. And sometimes I have handed in a script and gone, that scene I wrote was fantastic. And then we work on it and I go, all right, you're right. It's better now. I hate to admit it, but it's better now. Absolutely. But that's that's the whole part about bringing a versatile talent like you on because making that transition from a stand-up comic to a writer and... Because the check, the money's good, everybody. I'm just oh. to let you know. Oh. You get health benefits. And oh. I remember the first time I saw my check, I showed it to my wife. She said, you getting paid all that? And I was just a staff writer. I, I actually, I came on board as an executive story editor. You know that check's right. nice. That was back in 92. Okay. That check was way nice back in 92. It's way better oh. now. Yeah. And so that's why, really, you might see the people in front of the cameras working, but sometimes the writers and the producers behind the cameras are actually making more money than the actors in front of the camera. Talk about that whole uh, awakening, because like you said, you just wanted to do stand-up. You just wanted to be on stage. But then yeah. the awakening of getting that steady check, getting insurance, being validated as a producer and a writer opened so many more doors and respect for your brand, correct? Absolutely. I had no idea. I had no idea. So, you know... But originally they brought me in as a consultant. I was just going to be a consultant. Mm-hmm. And a couple of days in, Chuck was like, you know what? Uh, you can't just be a consultant. We need you to help us write this show. So they bumped me up to co-creator because I'd created the characters. I told them what the characters were going to be about, what they were going to do. So I literally created all the characters based on. So they kind of knew we can't do this without Gina. So mm-hmm. they bumped me up to co-creator and producer. And so... You know, when those checks started coming, I was like, oh, my God, this these white boys have been earning all this money all this time. What have I been doing? Yes. Wasting my life with this stand-up stuff. Yes, yes, yes. yes. But, you know, uh, if we, we laugh. We laugh, but that's TV, true. I wrote myself in as an actor. Because we're not only talking about that, but we're talking about you got a separate check when you wrote a script. Now, I know back in the day it was $16,000 per script. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is now, but I'm pretty sure it's more than $16,000 per script. Yeah, I mean, the, and the checks just keep coming in. I've never seen anything like it. So, obviously, I get a check as a writer, a producer. Yes. Mm-hmm. I get an extra check as a co-creator. Yes. Then I, I also, because I'm a comedian and I'm a performer, I wrote myself in as an actor. <laughs> I've always wanted to be the best friend on someone else's sitcom. So when we started writing it, I was like, um, I think Abishola needs a best friend. What do you think, guys? I think she needs a confidant. And I created this character. They didn't know I was creating it for myself. Right, right, I right. right. So right. I created this character. So, you know, you've got all those checks plus the repeat fees, you know, during the pandemic. 
when right. there was a lot, not a lot of material because a lot of shows got shut down. Our show got repeated a lot, and, and these checks just kept coming in. And I mailbox like, money, mailbox oh, money. Come on now, my days. <laughs> oh my days! I, I'm like, this is madness. And I was like, no wonder all these white boys love being writers on shows because these checks keep coming. It just can, can I tell you something, Gina? Uh, I still get checks from Jamie Foxx show. That's 98. Mm -hmm. I still get checks from Sister Sister. That's 97. I still get checks from uh, from the Parkers. That's 2000. So you do, those checks will keep coming. And that's why you go, how are these people living? Because they're living off residuals. They're living off of royalties. And I just feel it's such a blessing that Chuck really saw that and said, look, let, I'm going to do right by you. Okay. I can have you sitting over here as a consultant. But the real money in the game is writing, co-producing, co-creating, putting your name in those different titles. A check comes with each one. And now yeah. it allows you to pay it forward with your other peers on the show and educate them about the process of Hollywood really works. Isn't that really the process? You now know, now you can share how Hollywood works. Exactly. I'm learning as I go. And then as I learn, I, I, I call my, all my people and go, listen, this is what we got to do. This is where the money's at. We've got to create. We've got to create. This is Everybody wants to be in front of the camera, which is all good, but <clears throat> you're at the mercy of the people behind the camera who are creating and writing those scripts. Now, let's so, go back, yeah, let's go back to let's go back to my favorite part of your career, stand-up comedy. Oh, yeah. uh, my degree is in mathematics, okay? I graduated with degree. You're an engineer. So, like I said, I know we've never met, Gina, but I just feel that we have such a bond because we, we journey. I come from a big family, six sisters, mm -hmm. two brothers, Houston, Texas. And your book, Cack Handed, talks about... Uh, Nigeria, and it talks about polygamy. It talks about the British rule. It talks about mm -hmm. how people are considering uh, what you're doing to being sinful or a hellacious living a lifestyle of polygamy. But talk to about how that really was an advantage and also a sense of royalty. Like we joked off air that if my family, my mom and dad, especially my dad was in Nigeria having mm -hmm. six sisters and two, and two sons, <laughs> he was in great shape. Three sons, he was in great shape. So talk mm -hmm. about that whole lifestyle. Then we want to come with your transfer over to London, England, how that lifestyle. And then we're going to talk about coming to America. Let's get started in Nigeria. Yeah, I mean, obviously polyg <clears throat> polygamy was widely practiced. Uh, my grandfather had many wives and many children, and it was a, a matter of survival. It was a matter of keeping a, a closeness in the family. The whole family lived on one compound, and that's how it was. And it wasn't seen as sinful till white people came over and were like, what are you doing is wrong. It's sinful. And praying to these deities, you're going to worship this white God and this white Jesus and basically force their religion and their lifestyle and their beliefs mm -hmm. on the African people. Mm -hmm. And and basically a lot of our stuff got sort of watered down and lost over the years. And, and to a certain point, we've forgotten some of our original, um, you know, traditions because it got beaten and stolen from us, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so that was where my family, so my mother came from that. My mother's father, she had lots of brothers and sisters from various wives of her father. Mm -hmm. And all the all the women lived on on, on a compound. Now, it's, not, it's not always happy you know, love and happiness because my mother's mother was poisoned by one of the other wives because there was some jealousy. There's a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> my mother's mother was the first wife. And so she, you know, she was top of the hierarchy and was um, prone, she was, you know, prone to resentment from the other wives. Right. 
it was like a, an episode of Dynasty or something. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a real soap opera happening. But that was the tradition and that was the life that my mum came from. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a, a daughter, which was kind of the patriarchy in Nigeria is very strong. So as a daughter, you know, a lot of the time the daughters weren't always educated. They were right. groomed for motherhood and wifedom. But because my mother was keenly intelligent and her father was a well-traveled businessman, he was traveling all over Europe, traveling over the Americas, doing business. So he was quite an open-minded and a well-traveled guy. And he chose to educate my mother because he, he, he could see that my mother was extremely intelligent and, and sent her to really good schools and she was educated. And, and my mother became uh, one of the youngest headmistresses, school, you know, school principals, in Nigeria, she was in a, a school principal before she was 24 years old. Right. So she was highly educated, and uh, eventually she ended up coming to England to further her studies. And it was in England that she met my father. But so but, my but, but, father. but basically, she was kind of like forced to go over there, right? When her, when her, yes, when she was kind of kicked out. her mother was killed by the other wives. Yes, yes, yes. Because she was so educated and, mm-hmm. and, and so beloved by her father, my mother, her, her mother had begged, you know, her father to send her away. Yes, he did. That yes, she was she did. in danger from the other wives. Yes, she because did. they were envious of her education and the fact that she was so beloved by her father. So after her mother died, her father was like, okay, and sent her to England and said, look, here's money. Go to England, further your studies, make a life in England. Because, you know, England was seen as the motherland. Nigeria was a British colony. Right. So... England was seen as the motherland of Nigeria. So a lot of Nigerians wanted to go to England to study, gain those qualifications, and then come back and bring their, their new qualifications back to Nigeria and help build the country. So my, my, my grandfather sent my mother to England to study, and, that, and that's where she was, and that's where she met my father, and that's where my history begins. Well, your history, well, your history is a great history. You know, and the cack-handed. Let's talk about that, Tyler, because I want to go. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to Gina Yashare. <laughs> you know, she's the co-executive producer. She's the co-creator, actress, co-starring on the series Bob Hart's Bob Hart's Abishola, which is a CBS hit series. Now, when when I talk about this, about you in general, um, what I want to make sure people understand is that cack-handed is a word for clumsy or awkward. You know, she's left-handed. That's what. Cack means left in the British uh, terminology. So, when I what what word are we leading with? Is we leading with the word awkward tied to cack? Uh, we leading the word clumsy tied to cack, or is this out of uh, fish out of water? Which one of those terms is? There all there are so many meanings for the book. So, as you you said, uh, cack handed is a British old British word for left handed. Mm-hmm. Also means clumsy and awkward, which I don't believe we are. I think we're living <laughs> in a right handed world, so we're perceived as clumsy. If I'm at a bar and I'm next to you and I'm talking and I'm gesticulating with my left hand, I'm going to knock over your drink because you've put your drink on the right hand side of your body, which is your dominant hand. My <laughs> left hand is my dominant hand. I'm going to knock your drink over and then you're going to call me clumsy, but it's not. It's a right-handed world and, and I'm just clumsy in it because everything is catered for right-handers. So that's why cack-handed means it's clumsy and awkward. It also talks about my journey. My journey's never been straightforward. I've had to duck and dive and weave and, and circumvent um, various obstacles that have been put in my way. So that's also another meaning of cack-handed in that my journey has been unconventional. Uh, also, cack is another word for poo. I don't know if you knew that. No, I did not uh, know that. Not in my research. I didn't know that in my research. You know I was researching yeah, you, girl. Yeah, in uh, many <laughs> cultures, African culture, Middle Eastern culture, the left hand 
is the hand that's supposed to be the one that's used to wipe your bottom after you do a poo. So cack is another word for poo. So cack basically means poo-handed. So there are very, and and as a Nigerian, because my family's African, I was born left-handed. For a long time, I was forced to write with my right hand because the left hand is seen as unclean. And even in the Bible, you know, there's terms that say, you know, Jesus sat on the right-hand side of God. The right hand is always the good side. The left hand is always seen as unclean. So when I was a kid, yeah, I was forced to write with my right hand, forced to cook with my right hand, forced to do it. So if my mum walked into the kitchen and I was stirring a pot of food with my left hand, mm-hmm. I'd get a slap around the head and all that food would go in the trash and we'd start again. So hence that's why the title of the book is that, because it encompasses various aspects of my life and my journey. Wow, you're amazing. Uh, I want to wrap up by asking a couple of more questions. One, sure. why did you write the book? Because this is a memoir. You know, and yes. a memoir is usually told of uh, you want people to be motivated by your story, which I am motivated by your story. But why did you write the book and also become relatable? I felt a lot of your story was relatable. Like I said, in the beginning, uh, you know, we are built, you know, you may be in London, England, but you dealt with racism, just like I deal with racism in America. And Absolutely. sometimes we don't understand that. There's a Black Lives Matter movement in, a, in London as it is in America. Talk okay. about the importance of the memoir and also... Talk about how timely this book is, because it also is a history lesson book. It walks through the path of how basic you can say that, you know, Nigeria was uh, was uh, was undermined and basically uh, uh, robbed. And the, the jewelry and the success and the wealth was brought into British museums. So exactly. talk about that and help us out as as we as we I recommend people to pick up this book, because it is an amazing book. Cack handed. Yeah, I mean, why I wrote the book, originally it started off as just on Instagram, there was a hashtag Throwback Thursdays where you post old pictures. Mm -hmm. And I was posting old pictures and writing the story behind the picture. So I post the picture and write an elaborate post explaining the history behind the picture. And people were really interested in saying, oh my God, your stories are so good. Why don't you write a book? So I started keeping those posts in a folder. And eventually a literary agent saw my post and contacted me and says, uh, you need to write a book. So I, you know, I kept the post and like, well, maybe one day in the future I'll write a book, but I never really considered that this would happen so soon. So that's how the universe worked. And I wanted to talk about my history because people don't seem to realize that the UK started slavery, imperialism. The United Kingdom ruled most of the planet at one point. So people think that American racism is the be-all and end-all of racism. No, Americans learned that from the Brits. Mm -hmm. Americans came from the Brits. Yes. What we don't, what you you know, you don't realise that a lot of the black people that are from the the islands, Jamaica, Barbados, Trinidad, St. Lucia, these are all... Caribbean descendants of slaves. The British did their slavery slightly different from America in that I, I used to do a routine on stage where I did the, the, the British did a uh, equivalent of, the Americans did the equivalent of going, robbing someone's house, as in stealing people from Africa and bringing them back home to their own house. The Brits did the equivalent of stealing stuff, but keeping it in other people's houses. So <laughs> yes. Went to Africa and stole black people. They didn't bring them all to England. They hid their dirty doings and put the black people on Caribbean islands for the for the sugar plantations and on Caribbean islands. And that's where all those black people who come from those islands are descendants of slaves. So when African Americans, you know, there's been a discord for a long time between African Americans and people coming from Africa or people coming from the islands. Our history 
is almost identical. Black people in the Caribbean <clears throat> suffered exactly the same cruelty, exactly the same awfulness that they did on American land, on plant plantations within America. So what I wanted to do was when I wrote the book, I started with the history of Africa, Nigeria in particular, and the history of what Britain did to Africans and how they spread black people all over the world. That is not, the Belgians were the uh, terrible slavers, the Dutch, the South Africa, you know, all of it. So I just wanted to show the commonality between black people wherever you end up in the diaspora. We've all had very similar experiences. Our accents might be different. We might speak different languages, but the experiences are very similar. Um, so that's part of the history wow. of the beginning when I explain that. And then when I talk about my upbringing in England, I was also... In England, people think, oh, England, it's so genteel. Racism is, doesn't... England, and well, you're now discovering it with what happened with, uh, you know, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, mm -hmm. but racism is just as prevalent in Europe as it is in America. I spent my life running away from skinheads, being abused racially at work, being pulled over by the police all the time for no reason. The only reason that less black people die at police hands in England is because our police do not carry guns on a routine basis. Mm -hmm. They only carry guns for, for, uh, for, for particular incidents where they are then have given special permission to have. They do not carry guns on a daily basis. And that is the only reason the black people are not dying at the hands of police at the same numbers in England as America. The only reason the police in America are just as racist as the ones in England, the ones in England just as racist as America. So I wanted to cover some of that in my book. I mean, there's obviously humour. I'm a comedian. I want to make you laugh. So I'm also talking, you know, putting, injecting quite a lot of humour in the book. But I wanted uh, Americans reading the book to see that we have, black people have much more in common all over the world than we've been led to believe. You are amazing. Jeannie Yashare, her book, Cack Handed, is a memoir about her life, her journey. She's also CBS star. I'm going I'm to I'm move you up to star. Star. Uh, Bob Let's Hart, do it. I'll show. Take that. I'll take that. She's a comedian, writer, <laughs> co-producer, co-creator. Thank you for taking the time to come on Money Making Conversation, Gina. You're amazing. Oh. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Thank you. All right. Fellow Def Jam Comedy Jam members, you keep winning now, okay? Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Thank you, Gina, for coming on Money Making Conversation. Gina Yashare. It's finally here, the season of celebration. And no matter how you celebrate with family and friends, whether you're preparing for Reyes Magos or Karamu, lighting the menorah, or going to Midnight Mass, Kohl's has just what you need to make those traditions special. Plus, you'll find gifts for all your loved ones. Send warm wishes with cozy fleeces, sweaters, loungewear, blankets, and throws. Support minority-owned or founded brands by giving gifts from Human Nation and Shea Moisture. Or treat them to everyone's favorite activewear from top brands like Nike, Adidas, and Under Armour. And in the spirit of giving, Kohl's Cares is donating $8 million to local nonprofits nationwide committed to the health and well-being of our communities. No matter how you celebrate, when you shop at Kohl's, you're right where you belong. So this season, give with all your heart with great gifts from Kohl's or Kohl's.com. Hi, everyone. Al Roker here. As a guy with his own catchphrase, I appreciate that Smokey's only said, Only you can prevent wildfires. But I'm filling in because there's a lot more to report. Like when there are parched or windy conditions out there, you got to be extra careful with things like burning yard waste. After all, wildfires can start anywhere, even in your neck of the woods. Go to SmokeyBear.com to learn more about wildfire prevention.
Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Look through your children's eyes to see the true magic of a forest. It's a storybook world for them. You look and see a tree. They see the wrinkled face of a wizard with arms outstretched to the sky. They see treasure and pebbles. They see a windy path that could lead to adventure. And they see you, their fearless guide through this fascinating world. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. You are now tuned into the Money Making Conversations Minute of Inspiration with Rashawn McDonald. On the court, Chris Paul is a force to be reckoned with. Off the court, he's a father, husband, compassionate philanthropist, and businessman. He makes a huge difference in this community by supporting many organizations. There are so many people who have helped me get to where I am today that it's paying it forward and just trying to teach and educate, especially the youth, not only my own kids, especially them, but everyone. Just try to teach them because I'm still learning. Because what happens also is a lot of times people see you on television or they see you on that court and they think that's all you know. They think all you know is how to put a ball in a basket. That's not the case. Not only myself, there's a lot of intelligent athletes out there. And I think that's why we have to continue to learn. It's funny sometimes when you do get in the business world and people shake your hand and make a comment and they're like, oh, you know about it. Like, yeah, we only play the games from 730 to <laughs> Chris Paul's full interview is available at moneymakingconversation.com. Keep winning. Welcome back to Money Making Conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald. My next guest is an industry decision maker. His name is Phil Thornton. He is music industry. He's a music industry executive, television producer. Don't sleep on that. And senior vice president and general manager of RCA Inspiration. RCA Inspiration is the number one label in gospel music. Home to Kurt Franklin. Bam! Fred Hammond. The Walls, bro, the Walls Group, Leandra Johnson, and many, many more. And we're going to talk about that because I'm going to pull out this press release, the Gestella Awards. There's so many people. They actually just renamed the show the Provident Entertainment Awards. That's what they should rename that show. All these folks up there jamming up there. But he's also a member of the National Museum of African American Music. Uh, he's a board member. And it's important we talk about that because the, 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 the museum is dedicated to preserving and to celebrating the many genres created, influenced, and inspired by African Americans. The museum is located in Nashville and will feature special tributes in Black Music Month, which is the month of June, and present coveted rap, Rhapsody and Rhythm Awards to the Fish Jubilee Singers and Lionel Richie and Smokey Robinson and Quincy Jones and Shaka Khan. Shaka Shaka. You know, if you're old school like me, you got to say Shaka name twice. Because Phil wears so many hats, there are plenty of words that can be used to describe music industry executives like him and television producers like him. But there's only one, two words to describe him when I say him, because he's a dear friend of mine. I call him the man. Please welcome to Money Making Conversation, the man, Phil Thornton. Hey, hey, what's up, Rashawn? Thank you for having me back. Well, the man, okay last time. The, the man, I got to bring the man back. You know, you know, I, I you know, we we met, man. You came down. We had a nice meal. Uh, actually, I moved. I bought a building in Atlanta, man, in um, one acre lot, and uh, just uh, expanding on the. Uh, opportunities of more into television production, producing two television shows, currently, you know, expanding into talent. But one of the things I always appreciated you, and I think that what what you really liked about me was the the ability to multitask. And you do a very good job of that, Phil. You've always done that well. Talk about that that ingredients because a lot of people fail because they can't, they don't understand. They get, I gotta do this one thing and focus on this one thing. That's true. 
but you have to be able to do many things while you're focusing on that one thing. Tell us about that field, Tony. You got it. I mean, to me, it's all about multitasking. I love music. I love television and film as well. But I've been fortunate, Rashawn, to have great partners. You know, at, at every step. So on, on the label side, I have a great team that supports me, which makes life much easier there. And then for my television and film productions, I partner with various production companies to just kind of, you know, make sure things are moving with excellence and on time. And so, you know, it's really about just prioritizing, delegating, and just working with people that, you know, share that same heart and passion. And that's, that's very true because, the, but the key is, Phil, you know, I'm going to put the word, I'm going to put another title on you, visionary, okay? Because you have to see things that other people don't see. And sometimes, you know, we, we take that for granted because, you know, I, I always love the fact that when I look at my life, you know, you know, when I was branding Steve Harvey, the word branding wasn't popular. You know, it was just something I just did naturally. And so when I use the word branding, a branding expert, that's you. When I use the word visionary, that's a person who sees things, he sees talent, and he, t- he takes that talent into his fold. And guess what? They become stars or they become or, they, or they, they've lost their way. And you say, hey, uh, come work with me and I think we can we can do something together. That's a visionary. How is it when you look at talent? That's why I call my boy Will Packer. You know, when he came on the show, I said, "Will Packer, man, you know, when we was doing Act Like a Lady, Think Like a Man, and you know, because Steve Harvey and I, when we sold the book to Screen Gems, we envisioned that to be a white movie. We really did. And so Will Packer said, "No, nah, man, I got this guy named Kevin Hart, and I knew Kevin Hart, you know, but I didn't know." Kevin Hart, like he was impassioned by Kevin Hart. And so that was a visionary who basically launched, think like a man, basically launched Kevin Hart's career. And also out of that same movie, um, John Legend hit came out of that. And so so the two major players in the music genre and the acting comedic drama blew up because of his vision and his association. You have that same ability, whether it's new talent or talent that's been established or talent to look for a new vibe in their life. Talk about how you look at these different challenges that people present you from a talent standpoint. Shout out to my brother, Will Packer. That's my, that's, that's my brother <laughs> yeah, uh, right there, man. Good friend of mine. But yeah, I mean, on the talent level, it's, it's a certain indescribable quality. You know, Rashawn, when I meet talent that I never want to be, be uh, the one to outwork talent. So when I see and hear that passion, that commitment, that clear vision that they see it as well. And I'm more so of a person that's I, I become an, an executor of sorts, but having a talent that really, really has a clear picture of who they are first right. and foremost. Mm-hmm. And that's always important. And, and, and again, I may amplify what they say and what they envision, but it's important for the talent to have a true clear vision of who they are. Like, I don't want you to just do something because I think it's great. I want you to basically have that foresight and that vision. And I'll come in, like I said, amplify, take it to another level. But I look for authenticity. I look for just, you know, that that work ethic and just being clear on your purpose. And this is really your this is really your purpose because not everybody wants to be an actor should be an actor. Right, or right. everybody <laughs> wants to be a singer needs to be a singer. So making sure that your purpose and your passion uh, are intersecting and uh, but making sure that you're also authentic and there's something about you that will connect with people and that's what people look for. Well, let's, the Stellar Wars shows that you you you're dealing with authenticity. You know, when you look at the fact that the 36th annual Stellar Awards and 
Provident Entertainment celebrates 23 nominations for the 36th Annual Stellar Gospel Music Awards with 10 artists nominated in 17 categories. Do you, what do you, come on now, you know, your room is crowded now, <laughs> Phil, your room's crowded now, brother. Just on nominations alone, your room's crowded. The room is crowded. I'm grateful. We got some, you know, we, I think 23 nominations this year. We're on our Michael Jordan this year. So I'm, I'm feeling, feeling great about that. You know what I'm saying? We, you know, but I, I can always, I got room on the mantle. I'm looking at my mantle now and some Stellars and some Image Awards and some other. We got, I always make room. I just build another Come shop. on up. Because, but, so. but the reason I brought that up, because, you know, one of my favorite people, Kier Sheard Kelly. I got to put Kelly on there, you because know, you're married got now. You. You know, Absolutely. You know, artist of the year, song of the year, Albertina Walker, female artist of the year. Album of the year, uh, 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 contemporary female artists of the year. When I look at Mally Music, Marvin Sapp, Donnie McClurkin, All Nations Music, Travis Green, who I love to death, you know, Leandra Johnson, Corrine Hawthorne, Melvin uh, Crispell, and uh, KB. Now, when I I got to go back up to Travis Green because he's a special talent because he 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 has a crossover audience. If I'm not mistaken. And uh, when I interviewed him in uh, I think a couple of years ago, and then I look at Donnie, Donnie McClurkin. I've been knowing Donnie McClurkin since, since 2000, and We Fall Down, which, which, which put him in another stratosphere way back in 2000. We Fall Down. So then you look at Marvin Sepp, you know, his back-to-back singles. Now he's doing syndicated radio on Sundays, a weekend show. So all these people are different. And then you have this young 33-year-old Keir Sheard Kelly, you know, who's out there, Mally Music, who, 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 when you talk to him on the phone, you talk, you talk like your friend. You know, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know cause people get that word gospel, they think they're talking to somebody who's gonna hit them upside the head with the Bible. And that's the same thing with Travis Green. You have these people are all just real people, man. I think that's what you use when you say the word authentic, that's what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you got to think about it. They, yes, all of them love God. They have that in common. They've been called to do this, but they're normal people like you and I. Yes, you know, like yes, I just, yes. I literally just had a meeting with, with our our mutual friend Kirk Franklin right before this, and you and I both know Rashawn Kirk is one of the most down to earth people. Yes, yes, you know, yes, there he yes. is. Like he's gonna give you a scripture if you need a scripture or a positive <laughs> word. But he's a regular brother that's going through you know things like you and I. So mm-hmm. I mean, but again, so but same thing with Travis. Travis, um, which by the way, we got a new single. You heard it here first from Travis Green coming out at the end of June with Travis featuring Kirk Franklin and John P. Key. So that's that's going to be a big record for Travis Green. So they, yeah. John P. Key. Come on now. Yeah. North Carolina. Yeah. The North Carolina boy, right? John P. North right? Carolina. That's right. Absolutely. Charlotte. Charlotte. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. She got me, got me going back in my roots now with John P. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, that's, you know, that's taking you back right there. You wait, know wait, tell, like, wait, tell Travis, Rashawn wants him on the show the end of June. Just tell Travis Green. That's my boy. I got to have him. You know, because, Consider it done. Yeah, Consider because, it done. We'll make it happen. Absolutely. And so when I when I look at the whole thing, and the reason I'm just slowing it down a little bit, because we are on the show to talk about you being a board member. We're on the show to talk about the National Museum of African-American uh, Music. But gospel is such a key component to that music, to that genre. And so many people come out of gospel that supports the rest of the genre of music that's at these at your African-American museum. What, where is gospel at? You know, we come out of COVID where I, I like to believe faith was reinforced in 2020, especially with the civil unrest, with uh, 
with George Floyd. And, uh, you know, the anniversary is coming up this month, unfortunately, of his one year uh, death or, or murder or whatever name you want to put it. It definitely wasn't right. And uh, yeah. fortunately, the, uh, the first police officer has been indicted. And then we're up this summer, we'll find out how long he will be in prison or incarcerated. So where is gospel music at? Because, you know, you have hip-hop went out there that exploded. You know, you, you always have R&B, and then you had uh, fusion, you have jazz. Where is gospel music in that landscape of, uh, of uh, popularity, uh, revenue, tours, all those things? Gospel music is, uh, is, is continues to grow mm-hmm. stronger than ever. Like, I mean, we had a record breaking year mm-hmm. yeah, for our division. So, I mean, we, you know, great releases from Kiara Sheard and, you know, Corinne Hawthorne having, you know, airplay on both the R&B and the gospel stations. Kirk Franklin had three number one singles, uh, one of which was a gold single in Love Theory. So, I mean, it was a record-setting year for us as a division, but also the genre as a whole. I mean, people like Jonathan McReynolds and Tasha Cobbs Leonard from, you know, my competitors. And also, you got, you got Maverick City Music, I'm sure you're familiar with them. That That's mm-hmm. the new wave right now. And they're doing tremendous things in the gospel uh, realm as well. So really, it, the future looks bright. A lot of our partners at Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Pandora, et cetera, are seeing that this is an underserved community yes. that, but, that, that constantly shows up you know, with the minimal resources they've applied. So now they're starting to really, you know, ramp up more personnel and more uh, creating more opportunities on platform and more real estate for gospel music, which is encouraging because they also see the global opportunities for gospel. We're seeing a lot of growth in Africa and Brazil and the UK. So it's just, it really continues to just grow and grow and seeing cross genre collaborations, people like Kanye doing gospel and right. you know Justin Bieber just had a gospel album. So oh, holy! It just continues That's a cold to, cut, to, man. With a uh, chance to rap a holy. I love that cut by Justin yes. Bieber. I love that cut, man. Yes, yes. That yes. was chance so to rap. Right, Rashawn. Mm-hmm. Gospel continues to be you know current, relevant, and and we see. I mean, even H.E.R. the singer, her who just won, who's won four Grammys and an Oscar just a few weeks ago. She's got a gospel song that you know we put out through our division. So again, we're seeing a lot of our mainstream artists really paying homage to their roots and, mm-hmm. and and unapologetic about their faith, which is extremely important. So we're just, like I said, we're seeing the catalog grow uh, year over year, but we're also seeing the new artists continue to have a lot of um, opportunity and generate revenue and streams. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm one of those guys, man, I'm, I'm a big thinker. I, you know, when I see Travis Scott go down in Houston, do his Astro World concert and sell out in a couple of hours and 10,000 people buying tickets and, they don't. They don't, they don't have a lineup. Just buying tickets on faith. That, yeah. Can we get that in gospel? Can we get? The, can these young stars? Can we? Can we get that energy where there's a huge where they can fill up? You know, Philadelphia football stadium. It's, it, it, can the future get there? I know we tried it with the uh, Three Kings when it was Donna McClurg and Kirk and and uh, and uh, Marvin Sapp about mm-hmm. ten years ago. What, can we get there? The, the, can, can the Jonathan Mac Reynolds and all these talents that are out there, can they get on the stage and generate 10, 15,000 people showing up? Or am I asking too much and making that statement? I, I, you know what? I think it's absolutely possible. I think Jonathan, uh, Corinne Hawthorne, there's a few artists that immediately come to mind that could really uh, be a catalyst to that. But I'm telling you, keep your eyes on that Maverick City music. I've been watching their momentum and they're independent. Mm-hmm. You know, Rashawn, they're, they're independent, they're young, and, you know, targeting a young multicultural audience. But, you know, it's gospel. 
Right. And it's, you know, targeting that 18 to 24 demo. They just announced a tour. I think it was like 14 cities uh, a few weeks back sold out in four days. Wow. You know, so, I mean, so I feel like they are well on their way. When I look at just the next generation mm-hmm. to actually do arenas, mm-hmm. I see arenas in their future. Wow. I love it. Well, let's yeah. get back to why I brought you on, man. You know, June is Black Music Month. You know, we know the yes. advertisers, they've, they've taken note of that. They want to spend money during Black Music Month. And the big celebration in Nashville. Why Nashville? For the uh, National Museum of African American Music. Nashville, Tennessee. Music City. That's what they call it, right? That's what they call it. So, yeah. Uh, but I'm so Detroit. Yeah, Detroit up there. Yeah, LA. Yeah, I Atlanta. Know, we, we love Detroit. We love Atlanta. But, you know, Nashville <laughs> has been coined Music City. So okay. it just, it's, it's so appropriate that the, the museum should be open here. I mean, we opened it, you know, the soft opening was back during uh, in January during MLK weekend. Mm-hmm. And since then, you know, it's been open, you know, for weekends and we've now expanded it to you know, open Wednesday through Sunday. But this June Black Music Month celebration, it's like the Super Bowl Absolutely. for the museum. Like, this is, that's what it is. And so mm-hmm. it's super exciting. I mean, we've got the Legends Gala on you know, that Thursday, the, uh, the 17, 17. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, uh, honoring some of the, the legends. I mean, Quincy Jones and Lionel Richie and Smokey Robinson, Miss Shaka Khan. I'm going to say Shaka Khan, Shaka Khan, yeah. like you did. That was, the, that was the first 45 I had on my record player. Come on, four years old. Come on Shaka Khan, I feel for you. So shout out to Miss Shaka Khan and then the Fist Jubilee Singers. So that's the Legends Gala. And then on that Friday, you've got a, a series of, of panel discussions, mm-hmm. what we're calling the State of Black Music Summit. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we're talking about everything from sports and music to fashion and music to business and music. And also, you know, we're going to be doing our live podcast state of black music podcast hosted by yours truly um so that's happening on that on that friday and then saturday is the big black party and juneteenth celebration so it's so much happening in nashville tennessee and at the museum i'm just excited and i just encourage everybody to come out and see this momentous institution well let's talk about this i know you're on my show but it sounds like you should be on good morning america Sounds like you should be on today's show right now. Seriously. You know, this is the, this is your music city. Okay. This ain't Motor yes. City. You're in Music City. This is the, yeah. this is the National Museum of African American Music. You talk about, when you said, when you got to the black party, I was going like, okay, okay. Where, who, who else know about this? Oh, I'm trying to get it. I'm excited. So I'm saying that, why can't I, why can't you be on? Good morning, America. Talk about this. Where's the press on this, man? Where, what's, who does anybody see what I see here? Phil, you know me. I see big, man. This, you, yeah, you're, you're behind. CBS. I'll say CBS this morning has been a great supporter. There you go. Of the museum, they're actually working on doing another uh, feature to, to highlight this wonderful uh, week celebration that we have coming up. So, uh, but they've been super supportive. We love CBS, and hopefully, you know, our friends at GMA are showing some love and the Today Show. So, hopefully, yeah, because in the that's because that's Father's Day weekend. Right, that that June, it is. T- yeah, Father's Day is on that Sunday, so that Juneteenth. So I mean, it's but you know, again, it's it's if you can't make it on that Sunday, you're not doing it. Sunday is off, or even if that's Saturday, you can't make it. But Thursday and Friday, it's it's going to be so much and so many great people. You can you know learn so much amazing information and, and meet and network and you know just think about what what do you know a celebration where they're honoring Quincy, Smokey, Lionel, and Shock <laughs> and Fish Jubilee singers. I that's just iconic. That's I mean some of the greats. And, and so I'm super excited about what we have. But again, here in Nashville, Tennessee, let's go, Music City. Oh, I, I, you know something? You've sold me, Phil. 
He actually didn't sell. Why were you just teasing you anyway about that? But the, the, the <laughs> thing I just love about it, because I get so excited in watching your brand, you know, Phil, the yeah. thing about it, I always talk about your brand. I, I, feel, I feel you're yeah. a special talent. Uh, I happen to be in the room when you were honored by the legends, and that was a special night. And uh, and you have many more personal honors coming your way. But how did you get involved with the National Museum of African American Music? How did that come about as a board member? I, uh, a good friend of mine, she just was telling me about the museum maybe five years ago, mm-hmm. and facilitated an introduction uh, with Henry Hicks, who's our you know president and CEO of the museum. And when I met Henry, I guess he felt that passion, my love music and black mm-hmm. music because black music be clear is american music mm-hmm. when you think about every genre of music black people african-americans have played a significant role in the creation um not always the monetization but right. the creation has been um started with us and so he felt that passion in that conversation and you know they voted me onto the board like i said almost five years ago and i've been rocking since we did a lot of fundraisers um, you know, Sony, I was, you know, pretty instrumental in Sony's uh, financial gift that they uh, donated a, a few months back. So really, this is something that is, is so much, Rashawn, there. And I had to be a part of it because beyond the actual institution, I think about the education initiatives, what we can do on elementary all the way through college and scholarship opportunities. And these are things that we're absolutely implementing now. And so that's, the, you know, for the museum to be beyond the institution. And I wanted to be a part of that narrative, that storytelling and, and you know, Adam and doing my part. Well, the, the part of it that the music is, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to have Done that 45 single, the little 45 flip yeah. A and B side. Yeah. You know, I always remember that, uh, you know, and then I went to the A track, okay, and I thought yeah. that was been doing cassette. And then, you, you mm-hmm. know, we all had that long playing album, you know. But then then all of a sudden the, the CD came out, and then, all, yeah. and then all of a sudden it became digital. Mm-hmm. And, and so now I'm in my car, I can look at, uh, you know, any type of genre of music, I can make my own station if I wanted to. How does that play out for the artists? You know, because you have independent individuals out there, they can start their own labels. It's just a different game out there. And sometimes I don't even, and I'm, a, I'm experienced in the game field and I don't even understand it. What, 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 what technology or what knowledge do you have to bring to the game or, or is always a constant learning curve for you, Phil Thornton, in the music business today? It's constantly a learning curve, always. That's how you continue to be great. Like, because, you know, it was, it's, as you mentioned, I mean, it, it's evolved over the years. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about now, even with NFT and Bitcoin and everything happening with that movement, with the right. music industry, that's the next wave of, of you know, how music is going to be shared and, and monetized. So you, you have to be a, continue to be a student. Mm-hmm. I'm a student. I listen. I talk to my peers. I'm talking not only to the to the other CEOs and like Sylvia Rohn and John Platt, but I'm also talking to this younger generation to see what's the new, what's now, what's next, because you can learn so much, so much. Well, you know, now I need to know about the museum. You know, we, the Smithsonian when it opened up in uh, Washington D.C. African American uh, Museum, I it, it, lines you couldn't get in. Because they told yeah. us exactly what that experience was going to be about. 
You know, you told us about the block, what's happening on Thursday, what's happening on Friday, the block party on Saturday. You know, what is the museum experience when you walk through that front door? Is it two Ooh. floors? Is it a basement? How many square footage? Let's, let's take our time because I want you to be let's, as visual and let's have fun with this because let, we're walking through African-American history, music history here. Phil, I want, yeah. I want to take our time. I want to have fun with this next, this next question, the museum. And the museum is uh, how many floors is it? How many square feet? You know, just just walk me through that front door, man. And like you just the tour guide. The, oh, I got visual. I got people who listening to the show. I got people watching the show. So you really got to be creative. So the people listening, they got to feel like they're walking with you. The people who can see you, they got to feel like, man, I can actually see that that's that that Billy that that saxophone. I can actually see that guitar. I can see it all. I can hear it all. Come yeah. on now. Yeah, it's, it's when you walk into this beautiful space on Fifth and Broadway, Nashville, yes, Tennessee, sir. downtown, you see instruments when you wow. first walk through the door and some other great artifacts, wardrobe from some of your favorite artists. But then you actually, the tour starts um, in our Roots Theater, where we kind of show you a 10 minute movie on just the origin of Black music and its evolution over the years. You immediately exit the, the Roots Theater. And the first gallery that you enter is the Wade in the Water Gallery, which is our gospel mm. gallery. Uh, it's so super impressive because everyone knows it's the music started with spirituals and hymns and, hymns and gospel music is the foundation of all genres of music. So you start with gospel, then it goes into the blues gallery, uh, then jazz. And I mean, just to see some of the artifacts and the awards and memorabilia from some of your favorites. And then you go into the One Nation Under Group, which is our R&B <laughs> gallery, which is probably one of my favorite galleries. And just seeing everything from history about Motown records and Stax and Philly International. I mean, so much history. But also you'll see some of your favorites, you know, like your, your Mary J. Blige and Erica Badu is highlighted in there. So it's I mean, it takes you on a, a musical journey. Um, but also you have these great interactive uh, experiences within each gallery. So you can actually on your wristband that you have on when you enter the museum, you can actually add, you know, playlists from some of the favorite artists that you may discover in the museum. And, you know, there's an interactive uh, in the gospel gallery with Dr. Bobby Jones and you can sing in the virtual choir. Uh, but in the R&B gallery, you can have a dance off, uh, you know, to some of your favorite music. And then the, the museum concludes with our, hip hop gallery, which is really one of my favorites as well, because I mean, you can, you can actually record a freestyle. You can make a beat in there. Uh, you can rhyme to some of your favorite um, songs. And again, it all goes on your wristband that you get to save as a, you know, kind of a souvenir uh, electronically, everything is sent to you, but so much history in there again, covering, you know, gospel, blues, jazz, R and B and hip hop. So it's super impressive. All 56,000 square feet of just excellence and history and musical bliss. Oh, it's, it's well, you know, the fact that you started with gospel and you end with hip hop, you know, I think is, yeah. uh, is, is a phenomenal. And then I see, and let's just expand the whole conversation to see how blacks have finally been recognized in, in country and Western country music, I should say. Yes. Country music has been, we finally getting recognized. We're not a fluke. And so I'm not saying that's being included in that. I'm just saying that we finally starting to get, our 100% recognition about our contribution to each genre. But when putting that order together, there had to be some heated debate in the room. 
Do we start with gospel? Do we end with hip hop? Do we do jazz? Do we do uh, uh, R and B? Come on, come on. Tell me about that room before we go, man. Because uh, you know, yeah. come on now, come on. Hip hop. <laughs> I, I know some people say well, hip hop. They can't be cussing. They can't say the n word. I know it was some debate from them oldies when it came to hip hop. It, it, it was it was some spirited discussions, and I, and I was a part of them because I raised some of those uh, questions. Uh, but I got to tell you, but I, I got to sell take this time to celebrate the amazing historians. It was about a dozen, about 12, 13 historians and ethnomusicologists that worked really, really hard, Rashawn, on the storyline for the museum. And you had to start with gospel. That's where it started. So musically, I mean, but they did, this is, you're talking about years upon years of research. And you have some of the best and the brightest that just know about music. And so, but you can't, you know, we got to acknowledge where it started, gospel, but you also got to acknowledge where it is now in hip hop. And I will tell you, country, you know, I know they're working on some special exhibits and there have been a number of country artists, you know, Darius Rucker is one of our yes. national chairs. You know, Kane Brown actually celebrated at the uh, opening, uh, soft opening during MLK weekend and Willie Jones. So again, country is very much Thank a you. part of the storyline mm-hmm. and we're doing more to expand it because we need to make sure the country, as well as rock and roll, I mean, Lil Richards and I mean, you know, so many people that's, you know, represented throughout the museum, I really... I can't wait for you to see well, it. Well, it's going to well, blow your mind. Well, June next week, so you know I'm coming. Yes. <laughs> come, so on, I'm coming. come on, I got so, you. Let's so, go. so where did you go to college at, man, to get all this knowledge, man? Where did you, what school did you go to? Man, Norfolk come State come University. On, come on. Behold the green Ain't that an HBCU? Yes. Ain't that HBCU? Ain't that HBCU? Come, yeah, come absolutely. on now. Come absolutely. on now. Now, see. Yeah, here, I'm a proud HBCU uh, graduate. Absolutely. Here's, here's the whole thing. I'm going through the resume. And many times I interviewed you, I've never not said, it's boy from Norfolk State, HBCU, and we ain't never talk about that on the doing an interview. We're never, Come on now, you know, you know, that, and that's my home. That's home for me. Norfolk is home, so VA is home. I was uh, actually I was hanging with Missy Elliott the other mm-hmm. day uh, in Atlanta. We were catching up at dinner, and we were just talking about how grateful we are to be from Virginia. Just we learned so much. But yeah, Norfolk State, NSU, the holy green and gold. Come yes. on now, before we close yes, out, this is the me. last thing I want you to talk about. The, the values of attending the HBCU and how it has made you the person you are today. Phil Thornton, tell us about being attending an HBCU. One of the absolute best experiences in my life. I will, I will never, I don't regret. It was one of my dreams. I, as a child, I used to watch A Different World. And uh, my mom allowed, you know, allowed me to watch school days. So after watching both different world school days, I was like, man, I'm going to HBCU. <laughs> and the experience is like no other, the community, uh, just whether it's just students or even your professors, but the partying, that was also great. <laughs> the, the football game, the football, basketball game, the tailgating, the, the fraternities and the sorority, shout out to the noobs, you know what I mean? Spring 2000, Epsilon, Zeta chapter, you know what I mean? That's, that's what it is, Kappa Alpha Psi. I'm going to do that on your stream too, Rashawn. But, uh, you know? <laughs> so, but, uh, but uh, it was no, it was the best, one of the best experiences. I learned so much. I met some amazing people that I'm still in contact with to this mm-hmm. day. But it was just, man, just, it felt like such a, like I didn't want to leave. I knew I had to leave, but it's just like, I really didn't want to because of the community. And just the bond. I mean, Pharrell Williams, Pharrell used to come to Norfolk State to hang out with me on the yard because he was just in, in awe of just the whole college lifestyle. I said, you should enroll mm-hmm. here. But he used to come and hang out with me when I used to do college radio. We'd hang out in just the student union because it was just such a great energy and it was positive. And, you know, 
Just love. I love it, man. Thank you as always when you come on my show, Phil Thornton. You know, yeah. I yeah. just had to. I said, man, I've been this boy been on my show three times. We hadn't brought up his HBCU experience. We got to knock it out because because you know Black Music Month coming up. He about to be the he's a board member. You know, we got to know where your black essence come from. Now we know, Phil yes. Thornton. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on Money Making Conversations, brother. <laughs> Thank you, brother. I'll see you on Absolutely. Next. Look through your children's eyes to see the true magic of a forest. It's a storybook world for them. You look and see a tree. They see the wrinkled face of a wizard with arms outstretched to the sky. They see treasure and pebbles. They see a windy path that could lead to adventure. And they see you, their fearless guide through this fascinating world. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. What grows in the forest? Trees? Sure. Know what else grows in the forest? Our imagination, our sense of wonder, and our family bonds grow too. Because when we disconnect from this and connect with this, we reconnect with each other. The forest is closer than you think. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. And we're live here outside the Perez family home just waiting for the... And there they go. Almost on time this morning. Mom is coming out the front door strong with a double-arm kid carry. Looks like Dad has the bags. Daughter is bringing up the rear. Oh, but the diaper bag wasn't closed. Diapers and toys are everywhere. Ooh, but Mom has just nailed the perfect car seat buckle for the toddler. And now the eldest daughter, who looks to be about 9 or 10, has secured herself in the booster seat. Dad zips the bag closed, and they're off. Ah, but looks like Mom doesn't realize her coffee cup is still on the roof of the car. And there it goes. Oh, that's a shame. That mug was a fam favorite. Don't sweat the small stuff. Just nail the big stuff. Like making sure your kids are buckled correctly in the right seat for their age and size. Learn more at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. You are now tuned into the Money Making Conversations, Minute of Inspiration with Rashawn McDonald. I'm always searching for books that will benefit entrepreneurs. Soar, Build Your Vision from the Ground Up by Bishop T.D. Jakes is a book that aims to educate and empower readers on how to transform their vision into a reality. Everything starts with the vision. Expanding your vision, going to new horizons, always being progressive, not being so busy doing the work that you don't get to think the work you do. Most entrepreneurs, the same thing that made them great is killing them. They're so busy doing the work that they don't get a chance to think the work and they cannot confuse busyness with business. You have to build your own wings. I use again the metaphor of the Wright brothers and it took them forever to get the plane in the air, but they had to build their own wings in order to get it done. It's not going to happen through magic. It is a building process. Bishop T.D. Jakes' full interview is available at moneymakingconversations.com. Keep winning. Welcome back to Money Making Conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald. Uh, my next guest is what I like to call an industry decision maker. She's a, uh, she changes the game. 
Her name is Dr. Dawn Brown. Dr. Dawn Brown is a double board certified child, adolescent, adult, and sports psychiatrist. That's a lot. Let me say that one more time. Dr. Brown is a double board certified child, adolescent, adult, and sports psychiatrist. The reason I bring that up is because my daughter, she was a tennis prodigy at 16, and I know that we had to use a person to like this services because when you get into sports, you, you question yourself a lot and then you can be, you know, an injury you can come into play. And so it's a lot of things, it's physical and mental aspects of that athleticism and also in everyday life that comes into play. She's also a pioneer of the mental health movement and a nationally recognized two-time number one best-selling author, Forbes writer, ADHD coach, mental health expert, and public speaker. We're going to discuss with Dr. Brown why she chose psychiatry as her specialty how to prioritize your health, and the stigma regarding mental health. That's a big one right there. Plus, Dr. Brown's secrets to being a successful serial entrepreneur. You know this money-making conversation. You know I had to bring that up. Please welcome to Money-Making Conversations. She's living in Houston, straight out of Flint, Michigan, Dr. Don Brown. How you doing, Dr. Brown? Mr. Sean, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. Well, first of all, you look fantastic. Got that got money green on. You got money green on. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> <Right. Right>. Now, <laughs> you, so I said it a little bit earlier. Flint, Michigan, we know what's going on up there. Now, this is not a story about trying to get find out what's going on with the drinking water, but it is a, a part of your past and part of your life because I'm sure you have relatives still up there. Now you're in Houston, Texas, and we just came off that freeze storm that basically shut down the state of Texas and and saw how they were unprepared and what we call a state that's supposed to have they act together. That's the, the state of Texas. And we're still dealing with the consequences of that freeze that really caused the loss of a lot of lives. And uh, that's important. So when you're dealing with that, that's all. The reason I bring these up is that those situations cause mental stress. The Flint, Michigan, the Michigan situation where people are drinking water, they have to worry if that water's going to cause a deformity in a, a childbirthing situation or will cut short their life where their children grow up, will they affect their brain or, they grow, or their growth patterns? That's Flint, Michigan. Then you deal with the freeze situation that happened in Texas, and people are still trying to recover from the mental, I guess, uh, I want to say uh, effect of trust. Uh, will it happen again? Will I be prepared to happen with that? Talk about the whole mental makeup of people in general when stress comes into their life. A very interesting question you bring up. And even to mention Hurricane Harvey in there as well, right, in the comparisons. You know, trauma can be a blessing and a curse. It's mm -hmm. actually a silver lining in trauma. And how I say that is because of, it's obvious the curse, right? The traumatic experience that per, uh, people can experience with how traumatizing the situation, the condition experience could be for someone, how that affects their mentality, how that affects their emotional health, even their physical health. And then just like you're saying, their trust factor. Mm -hmm. You know, what's gonna happen next? Is the bottom gonna drop out again? I cannot be happy because I know something bad is going to happen. Right. But then it's, it's the blessing. Many people um, have you know, been motivated by trauma. Mm -hmm. You know, the determination, the diligence, the drive, the resilience of trauma, right? Mm -hmm. And so wanting to motivate yourself out of a situation, find the tools and the keys necessary to do so and never stop giving up. So, it, but, but then the baggage is still there. And if you don't address it, you don't deal with it, it can actually affect your mental health, right. particularly. 
and leave a lot of scars. Well, let's talk about the mental health from a standpoint of just day-to-day living. Let's talk about the minority community and where we all know the minority community uh, kind of um, shuns from showing weaknesses. And some people feel that if you admit that you have a mental illness, then you are weak, that you are showing a flaw, a flaw that can uh, that can uh, have people measure you based on your credibility, your sustainability as far as uh, what you can do with your life. Now, let's let's backtrack a little bit about the minority community in Houston, Texas. I'm just using Houston, Texas as an example, because I forgot about Hurricane Harvey in 2017. Hurricane Harvey happened in 20, devastated the city of Houston. That's minorities. Who would affect the most? Minorities. Then you move forward into 2020 and COVID hit. On top of COVID, devastated the minority community. Okay. Then the George Floyd situation came out rioting, uh, social and civil unrest. Still on top of that, you were dealing with COVID-19. How do you deal with that? No vaccination. Then we move into Texas. Then we did the, still on top of that, no vaccination yet, the big Texas freeze hit. Who did it affect the most? Minorities. Okay, now we're coming out. We have a vaccination uh, set up where we can get vaccinated. And minorities are one of the slowest group they want to get vaccinated. So that's what the trust comes in, but there's also the stress. Because now jobs are saying, if you don't get vaccinated, you may not have a job here anymore. Dr. Brown, the floor is yours now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's so much to unpack there, right? Because historically, mental health, physical health, just medical in general, medical health has not done people of color due diligence, Mm -hmm. has not been justified, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is an actual industry that has actually been targeted towards people of color, having been there, mistreated, um, not treated, not diagnosed properly. I mean, I can go on and on. And when you talk about mental health, all of those factors play a role. Then it's few of us, the lack of access, the lack of education coming from people like me that look like people who want to hear information, who want help, but just don't know who to trust, where to go to, if they have the financial need or the financial reasons of being able to go. Um, I mean, it's just so much, right? And so what we try to do is we try to just start it one step at a time. Um, When you have insult after insult um, that you're saying, Rashawn, from, you know, things outside of our control, such as weather patterns and, you know, the traumatic um, effects of Harvey in Houston, and then, like you're saying, the power outage, the water outage here in Houston, and then you're talking about um, COVID-19, and you're talking about people like look like me that are, you know, brutalized and murdered in the street, um, protests going on. I mean, it's insult after insult. So what happens to our emotional health? Yes. It's traumatized, mm-hmm. and it's scarred, and if we don't do something about that, then it could be actually jeopardizing and very dangerous because those scars don't heal. They don't heal at all unless you address them. Mm -hmm. You know, you can have a physical wound and you can actually see how the wound heals, how the skin, which is the largest organ in our system, can actually do miraculous things in just covering up that scar. You may have something to remind you of that scar, Mm -hmm. but it's not a wound that's open, it's cut, that's not, you know, vicious. But when you're talking about emotional health, it's something completely different. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the scars actually can become generational. It can actually be triggering. It actually can come up in different situations 
situations where you're not even thinking about it subconsciously. Mm -hmm. So yes, if emotional health is just as equally as important as physical health. And in our community, people of color, we definitely have to talk about it. Well, let's talk about that because I really like that analogy of the uh, of open scar, a wound that doesn't heal. Because let's talk about that for a minute. Because that's what happens from the mental aspect. We can't see it, so it cannot be acknowledged as a problem to the everyday viewer or the everyday eye. If you came in, if you if I came into the house and my daughter came into the house and her knee was scarred, we go, "What's wrong? Let's fix that." We put some a salve on it, some alcohol. She scream, "My daddy, no, no!" Then put a bandage on. Then all of a sudden, we'll watch it, make sure it doesn't get infected. And then when it's when it's when it's repaired fully, then we're comfortable again. Now, from a mental aspect, we don't see that. So if we did come in here and we saw a wound on the side of your head, and that signified that you were having mental stress, then we will know what to do. And guess what we would do, Dr. Brown? We will want to fix that problem. But when it's mental, then all of a sudden, you know, a lot of terms, he crazy. He don't have good sense. A lot of terms that I've heard in my neighborhood where, you know, that's don't don't, don't go next to him. That's a crazy dude on the corner. You know, walk past, walk fast past him because it was always deemed that somebody who was not who was mentally stressed was a person that you should stay away from right. in the minority right. community. Am I right or wrong? No, you're exactly 100% right. I mean, a Band-Aid is to cover up a wound, just like a smile is to cover up depression, right? Mm -hmm. But again, there's a historical analogy here. We were taught not to show emotions, mm -hmm. right? Think about slavery. Mm -hmm. If you showed a bigger emotion, then you were actually beaten, bruised, victimized, shunned, all of those things, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. we had to be strong um, in order to survive that time period, in order to make it to another day, in order to be okay. But again, historically, we were taught to do that. And that's become generational, part of the generational right. curse, if you will, mm -hmm. that nowadays we still, many of us don't show that emotion, right? Mm -hmm. And it's taught that if this is a sign of weakness, just like as a slave. Right. It's a sign of weakness. You're not good enough. You're not built well enough, all of these type of things. But I often tell my people of color, hey, you don't have to do that anymore. Right. That was back then. This is now. Mm -hmm. You have me to here to support you, your family that loves you. Here are the other support systems. And it's okay. It's okay not to have to smile all the time. Right. <laughs> it's okay to cry. It's God's tears letting you say, hey, I need an emotional release because I'm human. And back then, we weren't considered human. Mm -hmm. We were considered animals. We were considered victims. We were considered all these things that we couldn't actually express ourselves. And part of that mentality is still, again, a part of today's society, especially people of color. But again, even if we encourage for people like me to encourage our people, yet and still in different environments, atmosphere, work, whatever, social circles, that mentality still exists. Right. Well, you know, it's really interesting just hearing you talk is that, you know, they, you know, I hear the words cancel, cancel culture, which I can't stand. I, I hear words about, you know, why do we have to worry about trans, transgender? Why do you have to worry about the issue? Why are all these people coming out of the closet? Why, 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 why? Because they have been afraid. They've been afraid to live a life. So now we're at that mental health. We are afraid and we're trying to erode or, or remove the barriers of fear.
It's all right to say you are depressed. It's all right to say that you don't that you don't feel good and and that you you're stressing and that you this is you you've reached your moment. You need time for yourself. It's all right to take vacation away from your world. And so I say that because when I talk when I'm talking to you, Doctor Brown, I take this stuff very personal because of the fact that. People can criticize, and criti- people don't know the power of criticism. It really can stop a lot of people from seeking help. And am I am I correct when I'm saying that? Yes, you are. It is. Because not only do you have to consider the criticism that comes externally, but how internally as well, right? Absolutely. We all think we criticize ourselves. And, you know, and, and that's important. So, because so, I, I, you know, like I said, we have a lot to talk about, but I want to just talk about that little portion, but I want to talk about the mental health athletics, athletic centers that you have and, and the services that they offer. And why was it important to, you know, wrap, put the word athletic and health together? And maybe they understand it's all, has always been one. You know, I don't care if you Venus Williams or if you Tom Brady, there is a psychology, there is a mental ability. It has been known that, that the reason Serena Williams has not won her Grand Slam record because she stresses out too much. In the finals, and you said Serena Williams. Yes, yes. Stress and mental breakdowns have cost her from achieving her dream of winning all the last few Grand Slams that she's been in. And so, even at that high level, how do you come in with these clinics that you created that combine health and athletics? That reason right there. You mentioned the mission. You know, I want athletes to understand that they're human just who happen to have athletic abilities. So we recognize them as human first. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times when they were younger, you know, they were identified as athletes. So many of them don't even understand who they are. Mm -hmm. You know, they're trying to find their identity through it all, through their journey. And oftentimes that comes too late during retirement. And that's where we see a lot of mental health conditions as well that may come up. But when you talk about an active athlete, who is injured, who actually is trying to top last year's numbers, who is going for the Mm 3P. I mean, all of these pressures, mental conditioning cannot deal with. I mean, they have mental health issues just like us. Actually, as a matter of fact, more of them have mental health issues than the general population. So I thought it was critical to so they can understand that, hey, I see you, you're human first. As a recognized psychiatrist, I'm here to assist you. All of you may not need medicine. Uh All of you may just need a listening ear. How about just wanting to hear what you want in life, right? Right. (laughs) Wanting to understand what happened to last night's game that an interview didn't address. They're already criticizing you before you're able to even, you know, process what's happened. So, you know, it could be as little as that or as big as an issue as having a family history of trauma Mm -hmm. that got them out of the neighborhood to go pro. That was a part of their journey. Right. So I wanted something that it can be all inclusive, that um, athletes can take advantage of in working with someone like me. And that is trust, you know, that they can trust. Let me ask you, so so you're there for them. So why did you I I, I hear what you know, just the journey we're talking about now. But early when we came out of high school, we started going into college. What led you to this field? What led you to this range of study? Why? 
It came to me, Rashawn. Um, I actually um, recently I graduated from my child fellowship program at Baylor, and I was in private practice for about two, two and a half years. And a Houston Rocket player came to see me in my private practice. Mm -hmm. And he and his wife came, and he was experiencing anxiety. He didn't know what the terminology was at the time, mm -hmm. but he actually said, I'm just, I'm short of air. Like I'm short of breath. I can't breathe. And these are the conditions that lead to me not being able to breathe. And so he was describing some of these instances mm -hmm. and we actually came up with the terminology that identified him having panic attacks mm -hmm. um, yeah, underneath the umbrella of having a, an anxiety disorder. And so that's how it started. And, you know, the, the circles are so small, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, nowadays you have different pro professional associations um, that are gone whole for mental health, mental awareness, and I'm loving these initiatives that are now out. But back then, even just six years ago, right. it was mm -hmm. difficult for him to come to me. He mm -hmm. came with his wife. He experienced this for four or five years. It mm -hmm. affected his game. Mm -hmm. It affected his game to the point he's not even playing anymore. He could very well be playing. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. Um, and so, yes, that's how it started. You know, the, the, the thing about it, first of all, when we talk about mental health, and because uh, I, I, people always say, Rishan, how do you juggle so much? Because it's levels of stress, you know, and I also know how to walk away, you know, like I watch TV, you know, I, you know, you ask me on Netflix, I watch Netflix, you know, I watch Disney, you know, I watch sports. So what I'm telling everybody is that what helps you is what walks you away from the stress. And I remember when I bought the house in Atlanta and I told my wife, I said, I got to be near water. She said, she said, why? I said, because I need to be able to walk out there and just see something simple. And and I remember we was um, I'm just telling everybody in Georgia, just listen to how I deal with stress, and because there are there are little tricks to it, and there are tricks that you can do yourself. But what I try to do myself is that I try to make sure that every day looks different. In other words, we was in a high rise, Doctor Brown, and I started noticing that the treetops look the same every day. And I told my wife, we can't stay here. She said, "Why?" Well, I said, "It looks the same." I said, "I I gotta have something that triggers my mind." to be creative to into another journey. And so she said, oh, okay. She said, that's still prison. No, no, it looks the same every day. Same. <laughs> I, 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 I can tell you the trees. I can tell you these trees. I still count them, okay? <laughs> and so, so what happens, I think, in a lot of things, and I'm talking to a professional, and I'm talking to you, is that how I deal with that and being able to deal with stress, deal with the anxiety, deal with depression, I try to take myself in something normal. And that's when I say normal, go to the park, you know, go fishing, do normal things that are breaking the cycle, create a different conversation. And when people stress, they're stressing because they're not breaking the norm. This is just Rashawn McDonald's way of thinking about it. I just want to know, have I been on the right path all these years? Can you help me out, Doc? Yes, you have. <laughs> Listen, can you help me out? Because you are right on point with this. Seriously. Very insightful of you to even bring that up because it's about taking a break from. Yes. That has been my complete message to people. Mm -hmm. um, you got to take breaks and they have to take a lot of them. Similar to you, Rashawn, I actually relocated to another part of Houston mm -hmm. because my primary goal was to have a view of the city. Right. I'm from Michigan. Mm -hmm. I wanted a view of the city because that's what helps, you know, just really bring me back to reality. Right. When I'm hearing different stories, traumatic stories, situations, 
people's anxieties, depression, it's easy for me to take that on. Mm -hmm. So I even have to take a break and having a view was very important. And so that helped determine where I am. And that has been a lifesaver for me. But you have to find something that's allowing you to break away mm -hmm. from routine, from stress. Mm -hmm. Vacations are important. Mm -hmm. You got to schedule them like you schedule meetings, right? <laughs> yes, yes, you In do. the middle. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> even, even your daily breaks. Mm -hmm. Even the prize, Rashad, how many people don't even break during the day? No, no. No. You know, that's I mean, that's why it was important when I when I scheduled this interview because of the fact that when you start a business, stress. When you start a relationship, stress. When you're having children, stress. When you're doing a job, you know, that's why I had to mention about from especially in the Houston market. We can go to different parts of the country. You can do the stress that came in the state of Georgia when President Trump and was down here saying that the, the voting was was illegal, that they were cheating. You had the Republican stress, you had the Democrat stress. And then you had then you had the Black Lives Matter movement running around. They were being called thugs being called a, a, a terrorist group, that level of stress. I, your profession, I would have to believe is under stress too, <laughs> because so many people are coming to you for so many new answers, Dr. Brown. Yeah. It, we're in a pandemic as well. Mm -hmm. Mental health is in its own pandemic. Mm -hmm. The good thing about it, however, Rashawn, is that people are coming to get help. Thank and you. technology has been a huge key mm -hmm. um, in creating that access for mm -hmm. many people who formerly didn't have access, mm -hmm. who didn't want to come to a place to get help. Mm -hmm. The screen, the stigma is a part of that destigmatizing experience mm -hmm. from people where they're in the comfort of their homes mm -hmm. talking about something that's triggering and they're able to communicate that through a screen has been helpful insurance companies have gotten on board to provide coverage for telepsychiatry so that people can get help. EAPs are on board to be able to allow therapy sessions for their employees who have been at home over a year and a half. So people are understanding this mental health movement now. They understand how important mental health is. And it is amazing to see that. But we're still in a pandemic and we're going to be in this for quite some time. So, you know, yes, stress is everywhere. It's a part of our normalcy, our right. normal day life. Right. But we have to understand that, hey, there is help out there in order for you to help manage that while you're dealing with it as well. Well, you know, the help is, first of all, has to be acknowledged by you. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, like I said, I, I've acknowledged the fact that I need. I need I need to see things, movements and things like that that relax. That's my triggers. And that's a, that's a popular word you hear, especially when you talk about mental health. What are your triggers? What what the what are the bad triggers and what are the good triggers? The good triggers for me is that I gotta be so I gotta see change all the time. I gotta be, and I'm not talking about I gotta hear loud music. I gotta go to a party. I gotta drink. I gotta be the life of that. And I'm stepping out of my own being to no. I'm talking about I go down to my little lake. I sit down and I watch the fish. And it relaxes me. And if, and then it, and it takes me down a little bit where I can't see any streets. I can see part of my house. So I'm almost in my little world. And so, and it's kind of like that been that way for me, you know, my whole life though, Dr. Brown, I've, I've, I've unconsciously figured out positive triggers for me. You know, in New York, a lot of people, I can't stand the, those crowds. I love the crowds. But then you come to my, my place 
is spacious, you know. I and so I'm not. I, so I don't carry that crowded environment of the streets into my home environment. I, hey, I, hey, I got these walls too close. Okay. <laughs> so, so it's really about some of the decisions. But the bigger thing of our takeaway in this conversation and why you're so important is that there's so many people who have not found the positive triggers, and that's why you are so important. Talk to us about that. Amen. Amen. I have an ADHD mind. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I have ADHD and the MD with ADHD, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so like you, I love the noise, the action, the stimuli, mm -hmm. um, because it allows me to be moving with it. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm motivated by it. I'm driven. I'm productive. Mm -hmm. But then there are times when it's just too much for me and it's overstimulating. Mm -hmm. So I have to travel. So my positive trigger is international travel. And the reason I say international, because it gets me out of my comfort zone. Yes. I go alone. I want to learn about different cultures mm -hmm. that I don't know anything about, meet new people. So it's a lot of newness that allows me to be in a very calming, right, type of mood and zone. Positive triggers are so important. I'm glad you brought that up because oftentimes when we talk about triggers, the automatic th thought process about that is it's negative. Right. But no, there are positive triggers and we need positive triggers to balance out um, our ability to manage stress. We need positive triggers to understand when it, we to know when it's time to take that break, when it's time to take that vacation, right? When it's time to go to bed at night, stop, right. you know, being up at two o'clock in the morning because right. you always going to have work to do. Well, you know, um, I, I, so I want to say something. <laughs> I want to say something to you, Dr. Brown, because I'm kind of a, not annoyed at you, but annoyed in the system, you know, yeah. like, because, you know, May is, you know, Mental Health Awareness Month. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> it's not just one month, everybody. Okay, and it, and and what, that gives you a false sense that we're gonna recognize this month, and the problem goes away. It's every day, every hour, how you deal with it, how you relate to it. And I brought Dr. Brown on this show, you know, to let you know that she's here for you. She's here to to give you a sense of um, awareness, a sense of a hope. A uh, 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 ear, and when that, when when that ear is listening to you, she's going to give you answers. And if you if you don't have the answers, then she's willing to walk you through the steps to get to that answer. You come when you come to a person like Dr. Brown, her centers, and uh, and what she's trying to do is she's trying to let you know that it's it's time to acknowledge there is something wrong. See, that's the key, right, Dr. Brown? That's the key. And, you know, mental health doesn't necessarily just mean um, I'm having suicidal thoughts or I'm hearing voices mm -hmm. or, you know, these these the kind of the extreme of it. It could be that I'm fatigued. I'm tired. I'm mm -hmm. losing my hair. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Nothing is, you know, I'm having thoughts that I'm not necessarily worthy. Like mental health shows up for different people at different levels of severity. Right. And I love people just, to, you know, just like they get physical evaluations or physical checks up, right. checkups, mm -hmm. annual checkups. Mm -hmm. I would love if people can go to a mental health professional and get an annual mental health checkup. Mm -hmm. Wow, how better they would be, how better this world would be. Um, it just will, will normalize. We gotta normalize mental health because it's important. We all experience mental health. Like just like you said at the beginning of our conversation, we all have mental health issues and wellnesses. And so it's important for us to take care of it, regardless well, you know, of what you know, level it is. The thing about it, I, when you talk about fatigue, I, I remember one day my wife, I, I, I get up and I just drive myself to the airport. She went Day she said, I'll drive you. I said, you know, I got to get up early. And we were, we were driving. She was driving me. She was looking at me in the passenger seat. She says, uh, 
She said, wow, when are you tired? When do you, when are you tired? I said, I'm tired right now. I said, but what I've learned, I've, I've created triggers to, to be able to mask that. Okay. And I say, that's not a good thing too, to mask fatigue. And so when you, when you're doing things, mask is a dangerous term in the, in mental and physical awareness because you can mask fatigue and it can lead to other issues. That's why you have to know your body. In this case, you have to know your mind. And, and I'm not saying I'm a specialist. I'm just bringing you on the show. You are the specialist. And believe me, you got to come back on my show. I could be talking to you for another hour because you and I, we, first of all, we're connecting, but I think you understand how I think. And I, I have a lot of natural awareness and, but you have the technical awareness because I can't teach anybody what I know. It's, it is something I've designed for myself. But you can teach individuals and get them to walk the path of, of, of lightness. You know, come out of the light and because mental health is darkness. If you live in a, you live in mental health, that light is not on in that room. It's not That's on. Right. And you can right. help them. So tell us a little bit about it in the website so we can get that out there so we can just start. You know, you, 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 my one, you, Texas, 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 the heights, the heights, the heights. <laughs> Let's walk us out of here. <laughs> Rashawn, you know, that's why I really appreciate and respect your platform. I, I listen to you all the time. Thank you. And I love your openness with others. I love your realness and you sharing your personal experiences so people can connect with you. Mm -hmm. That's why we connect so well, because you're a realist. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be an expert to understand how this works. Mm -hmm. You are realness. And so I appreciate that about you. So thank you for having me. Um, you can find me at Dr. Dawn Psych MD. Mm -hmm. That's probably my main hub, Dr. Mm -hmm. Dawn Psych MD. That's D R D A W. N, P as in Paul, S-Y-C-H-M-D, on all social media platforms. Please connect with me. I would love to connect with you and see how I can be of service to you. Well, you're in service to everybody who's listening and watching the show down in the Atlanta area on my TV show that airs on AIB TV. Got over 2 million homes, my social media. But more important, you're a brand that makes a difference in everybody's life. That's why I created Money Making Conversation. Dr. Don Brown, thank you for coming on. And, you know, when I come to Houston, you know, I, we got to go somewhere and do a foodie moment because I'm a foodie. Okay, I'm just let I'm you know. Ready. Okay, that's all you, that's all you have to say. It. You're ready. I'm, I'm ready, okay? We be good. Thank you for coming on Money Making Conversations, okay? Thank you for having me, Rashawn. Appreciate it. What grows in the forest? Trees? Sure. Know what else grows in the forest? Our imagination, our sense of wonder, and our family bonds grow too. Because when we disconnect from this and connect with this, we reconnect with each other. The forest is closer than you think. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. If I could be you. And you could be me. For just one hour. If you could find a way. To get inside. Each other's mind. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. We've all felt left out. And for some, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Walk a mile in my shoes. Adoption of teens from foster care is a topic not enough people know about, and we're here to change that. 
I'm April Dinwiddie, host of the new podcast, Navigating Adoption, presented by Adopt US Kids. Each episode brings you compelling real life adoption stories told by the families that live them with commentary from experts. Visit adoptuskids.org slash podcast or subscribe to Navigating Adoption, presented by Adopt US Kids. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Administration for Children and Families and the Ad Council. You are now tuned into the Money Making Conversations Minute of Inspiration with Rashawn McDonald. Lonnie Love went to Prairie View A&M University in Houston, Texas for about four years and got her engineering degree. Lonnie worked as an engineer for IBM and other companies for more than 10 years. Then she realized that engineering was not her passion. Stand-up comedy was her gift. I just think everybody should tell their journey. And especially people of color, people don't understand how hard it is for us to make it. That's why I want everybody, especially during the pandemic, to share their story. You know, and so this is my story. I grew up in Detroit in the Brewster Project, and it just takes you through that whole life thing. Because, you know, some people only know me from The Real or from Chelsea Lately or, you know, the, the, the shows that Rashawn would put me on regularly. <laughs> um, so, but, you know, it's a whole journey. Lonnie Loves. Full interview is available at moneymakingconversation.com. Keep winning. Welcome back to Money Making Conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald. My next guest is Todd Jones. He has been in the donut making game for over 45 years, and I'm a donut eating man. He started Cousins Dozens 26 years ago. He is a mini donut shop in downtown Brooklyn, New York, which I have visited and enjoyed eating those donuts because the reason I love it, he makes the donuts right in front of you. You can just see them go around there. I want that one. I want that one. It's really cool. They have different toppings like glaze, cinnamon sugar, and funnel cake powder. They also have what we're going to talk about and have fun with, donuts for grown-ups. <laughs> Please welcome to Money Making Conversations a good friend of mine out of Brooklyn, New York, Cousins Dozen, Todd Jones. How you doing, Todd? I'm well, Rashawn. How are you today? Cause you should be happy, man. You know, you out there selling donuts, coming out of the pandemic. You look like you're tired, man. You look like you're tired of selling donuts. Come on, Todd. That's not the Todd I know. No, I'm not. I'm not tired, man. I'm excited. As a matter of fact, I had to get up this morning, four o'clock in the morning, to get an order out mm-hmm. um, to a client that I had. So um, I'm, I'm off of making like uh, 80 boxes of donuts this morning, man. So wow. I'm ready, man. Of those little mini donuts, right? Yes, sir. We we say minis and new skinnies, Rashawn. <laughs> well, look here. I I ate a lot of your skinnies the other day because you because you <laughs> shipped me like two boxes of those little skinny donuts. And guess what? Yes, they're, they're tempting though, the mini donuts, because they're not regular size. So you can just wind yourself, eat them like Fritos, like potato chips. Exactly. Tell me about the popularity of your mini donut stand. Well, uh, we have been in downtown Brooklyn for a number of years now. Um and um, we started to make the mini donuts down there. And uh, I came up with a new brand, a new flavor called Donuts for Grownups. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, right now we're featuring Hennessy. Mm. You know, so we say anything is possible. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so we're, we're just, um, you know, churning out those donuts, man. We want to uh, make a franchise out of it. We should be ready by the end of the year. And we actually want to sell the franchises to women entrepreneurs because the women are the fastest growing segment of the population that's starting businesses. Absolutely so, you correct. Know. Mm-hmm. Especially black women. Now, let's yes. let's talk about, you know, because I've interviewed you before, Todd. And actually, mm-hmm. you know, I said earlier in my interview that I've been to your location in Brooklyn, which is really cool. Very mm-hmm. busy area in that little mall yeah. that you're in. Now, 
you just didn't just get in the donut game. You know, you didn't just wake up and say, hey, I'm going to just start doing donuts. Like I said earlier, you've been in the donut making game for 45 years. Talk about how how you got in it. And let's walk through those steps as we go through your journey of cousins of developing cousins dozen. Right. So um, 46 years ago, I got a job at a donut shop called the Cup and Two, which is owned by three African-American brothers. It was a u- unique experience for me because I got to see African-American men run businesses. And it really intrigued me. And, it, 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 you know, I just had the entrepreneurial bug from there. So I worked with them for about four years. And then I went to uh, Dunkin' Donuts, which uh, I stayed there for 20 years. Wow. And I can say, and they can say I was the highest paid baker in Dunkin' Donut history. You know, I mean, I was making so much dough, man. I was driving the BMW, man. My license plate <laughs> said buy donuts, man. You know? Now, let me ask so you this. this. Now, so, so when you started first, were you into baking? Or that was just a job you took the responsibility on when you started working with the, the gentlemen, the African-American, the bake, uh, donut owners, donut store yeah, owners? Yeah, it, it, it was a job at first, but then I really began to like it because of the fact that you know, Rashawn, as, as a chef and cook, you know, when somebody tastes your stuff and really like it, it puts mm-hmm. a smile on your face. Right. And mm-hmm. I, I was seeing the response that people were, were having, you know, when I made the donuts. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was doing it after school and, and the summer came. I do it during the summer and it just became my passion, man. Right. You know? And so the, the cool thing about it is that, you know, two of my favorite desserts are donuts and ice cream, you know. And so donuts... I love all. I like I like the glazed donuts. I like donuts with mm-hmm. something. I like those cake donuts. You know, right. I like uh, uh, donuts that are stuffed. So, so what were you making, and what became your favorite donut in the early years? Because you said you went over to Dunkin'. They do a lot of stuffed donuts. Right. So, talk walk right. us to the steps of what 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 is the difference between the cake, the glaze? Why the glaze is so popular, and then the, and then the and, and then the evolution of the stuffed donut. Right. Well, well, first and foremost, there's two types of donuts. There's a yeast donut, which is the soft ones, which is the glaze and the jellies. And then there's the cake donut. The difference between the two with the yeast, it, it takes more time to make because you got to let it sit. You got to let it rise. You're putting yeast in it. You know, the cake donuts, you know, use flour, you know, some water, some other ingredients. And you can go right away with the cake donuts and make them right away. Um, with Cousins Dozen, Obviously, we use the cake donuts because, you know, it's it's faster. Right. You know, and I think it's a better tasting donut. You know, I like the density uh, of a cake donut. And the type of uh, uh, donut that we have is like preparatory where it's like a buttermilk cake donut. You know, that's where you get that when you when it hits your tongue, man, it, it melts right in your mouth. This is true. This is true. You know? Yeah. Now, now the stuffed donut. Now, like I'm just talking about the donuts in general because that's not what you get at, mm-hmm. the, at you know, at uh, your your locations. Cousins does is what right. specializes in many donuts. But right. why are donuts? I can tell you why. I just like donuts. But donuts are generally <laughs> are, are something that you eat early in the morning, or is it a, a snack? Or, or am I just assuming mm-hmm. that because I get my donuts in the morning? Because a lot of people drink coffee, they tie donuts and right. coffee together. What is the evolution of the donut? What, what tell us about that? The donut and its popularity. Well, well, well now it, it done went from just being a breakfast item to a twenty-four hour item. Right. You know, um, from the evolution of what I'm doing, 
as far as the donuts for grownups, that's an alcohol right. infused donut, mm-hmm. you know? So, I mean, people aren't going to eat the Hennessy donuts in the morning, but, you know. <laughs> you never know. Eat in the afternoon. <laughs> they might eat it for lunch, for sure. Hennessy yeah. donut. <laughs> and, I, and I usually tell people it's 6 o'clock somewhere in the world, you know? Absolutely. So, you know, not a, but other, you have other flavors than Hennessy. You have Chirac. You have other. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, we do Ciroc, we do Pink Moscato, you know, any oh, any type of look. I did, I've done Doucet, you know, we've done mm-hmm. all types of donuts, man, as, as far as your imagination can take you. Now, let's, you when know? we talk about donuts, well, you know, because we just came off of COVID, and New York mm-hmm. was hit the worst with shutdown, shutdown. And I, all yeah. I could think about was all my friends like you dealing with, mm-hmm. you know, no customers, uh, would they get a PPP, you know, a payroll mm-hmm. protection plan, uh, loan? Right. So how did you, when 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 we got shut down in 2020, mm-hmm. the first two months, walk us through that stuff, the anxieties of what's going to happen oh, yeah. with your business? Well, well, well for me, um, I had to do a pivot. And the pivot that came to me straight from God was mail order. Start to do mail order. And I came up with this concept. Well, God gave me the concept, dough to door. And I was shipping donuts all across the country, Rashawn. It saved me. Wow. It saved me. Mm. You know? And another idea came to me that instead of doing brick and mortar, do mobile. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we're going to be franchising mobile donut trucks. Mm. Mm. You know, I I got theme music to go with it too. But Sean's like the Mr. Softy man, man. When you hear this cousin's dozen song, you know we're on our way, man. Well, you know, you know, when no. growing up, when that ice cream truck came in the neighborhood, I don't yeah. care how old you are. I don't care <laughs> if your mama was spanking you. She stopped spanking you. you. Go, boy, here's a quarter. Go out there and give me some ice cream. And when you come back, don't be don't be crying out there. Don't let nobody know I finished spanking you. It was like that's what the mm-hmm. whole. The whole the thing I love about you, Todd, is that first of all, you're you're you're, you're a businessman, but you also are passionate about your product. Because yeah. even when I was in your store and the customers were coming in there, it was almost a, a relationship that you're creating with your customers, as well as the the passion of wanting to deliver a product that's going to put a smile on their face. That 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 just really so it's, it's beyond just making. Right. franchising and making donuts, this is like a cultural a cultural change yeah. for you when people eat your food. Yeah, for, for us, it's just not selling donuts. It's an experience. We want you to experience. We want you to see the donuts. We want you to smell the donuts. We want you to taste the donuts. You know, it's an experience. Cousins Dozen is an experience, you know? And that's what we're, we're, we're creating down at the Cousins Dozen store. Now, when you would like you said, he said he ships his donuts. It's absolutely. He shipped me some donuts. He, he uh, DM'd me on social media. Said, Rashad, you want some donuts? I gave my email address. I gave my, my building address. Boom. Donuts arrived fresh with three yes. types of toppings. You know, it was it was mm-hmm. the uh, it was the uh, funnel cake powder. It was the uh, the cinnamon chiro. And there was the glazy, the glazy type of icing as well. And I was able to put them on all three of them. And now I like my donuts a little a little above room temperature, so I stuck it in the oven for like fifteen seconds only. Yeah. Them by, put them, plated them, took a photo, sent it to you with me smiling, because if you just <laughs> saw it five minutes later, the plates were clean. Yeah. 
So I, I should have done that. I should have. I should have showed you a plate empty and a plate full. Because a lot of people don't think I eat food. They go, "We shall you don't eat that. How can you stay as skinny as you are?" Hey, don't worry about how I stay as skinny as I am. What you worry about, you send me some good food, Rashawn's going to eat it right. and give you honest opinion. Right. And like you said, when I ate the donuts, which is, I'm going to tell you something about his cousin's dozen donuts. If you if you try to watch your weight, don't go there because the donuts will sneak up on you because they're so small and so tasty that I ate, I ate 15 donuts. <laughs> Yeah, I ate 15. I, I, I won't tell you the truth. I did eat 15 donuts. These little mini donuts. And in my mind, I was rationalizing by, it was like four of them equals one normal size donut. That, that's how I was rationalizing. So I really ate four donuts, Todd. <laughs> so, so just the mantra is when you eat the donuts, mini is a new skinny. Mini is a new skinny. Mini is a new skinny. Well, Keep that I, I, in your head. Well, I'm, I'm skinny. And I'm many, and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna keep doing it. So I should be ashamed in my game if I'm eating cousins dozen donuts like this, huh, Todd? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, so yes, when, sir. when we talk about this, you know, in Brooklyn, Brooklyn's hot. We got the mm-hmm. got the Brooklyn Nets. It's a city in itself. You know, right. everybody talks about Manhattan. Everybody talked about Harlem, but really, Brooklyn is the new city borough. This is an exciting borough. Tell yeah. us about that community of Brooklyn. Yeah, Brooklyn, man, it's 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 a a, a diverse neighborhood. You know, you got di- different ethnic groups, different you know financial groups, and you know we we, we all in there doing our thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and with that being I, said, uh huh. that being I, I said, lo- I with, love Brooklyn. I with, love Brooklyn because I know that um, Spike Lee his his office is over there. You know, I know mm-hmm. the Brooklyn Nets over there. I know high rises are being built out there. Over there in the right. Brooklyn area, Brooklyn area, I, 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 they, they, you know that whole there's a large African American, very diverse population that's based in yes. Brooklyn, and Brooklyn just started to hum, you know, because like I said, yes. growing up, all you heard about Manhattan, then you heard about Harlem, Harlem, Manhattan, Harlem, Manhattan, Not, then you heard about Queens, but Brooklyn, man, yeah, yeah, Brooklyn is it, man, I, and I've been in Brooklyn now for about, I would say about 15, 16 years, and the community embraces me. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when when we went through that uh, gentrification situation, yes. I survived that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, you know, Brooklyn's home. But yeah. but, Michelle, I'm gonna announce right here on your show. I'll be down back to Georgia, man. I'm, I'm coming back down there, man. Okay, okay. Back okay. down. You you bringing the cousins dozens to Georgia? That's what you say? Are you making an yeah, announcement what, on my that's show? That's exactly Tom what I'm Jones. saying, Michelle. Okay, I'm bringing the cousins dozen down to Georgia. I think that's gonna be the first place I uh. Put the food truck down there because wow. you guys have a very diverse and, and booming food truck business, and I'm gonna you know add my flavor to it. Okay, here's the deal. So you know, you gotta let me know ahead of time so I can like oh, you know because because we're gonna treat it like a pop up, yes, treat it like a pop up because yes, uh, because of the fact that see what I what, I've been knowing Todd a long time, and he's always been a uh, see the reason I like him is that. He does what I always tell young entrepreneurs to do. He reaches out, then he follows up, and he's professional. See, a lot of people, when they reach out, if they don't get a response, they frustrate, they blow it off. And mm-hmm. and so and then when I say that, you can't always assume that just because somebody didn't immediately respond back to you, that there's a right. negative situation that's developing. 
Work with their schedule. Send them samples of what you're trying to get them to understand. Oh, but you mm-hmm. always have variety, and it always led to your success. Tell everybody about how important it is for relationships, Todd, and building out your business, and also franchising your business, also creating a mobile business. Relationships mm-hmm. is the key to Cousins Dozen success, correct? Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's all about relationships, Rashawn. Um, but before anything, people want to, you know, have great relationships with people. You know, it, it's not about money so much. It's all about people and relationships. You get your people and your relationships straight, you'll be successful. You'll and definitely I, be successful. Well, you know, I, I 100% agree with that. I also agree that, you know, there are other entrepreneurs out there that, that give you a platform. You know, I know that when I was building that Steve Harvey's career, I looked at other talents and, and mm-hmm. see what they're doing. You know, Denzel Washington's doing this, or uh, Bernie Mac's doing this, or Cedric's doing this, or DL doing this, which was in his lane, mm-hmm. or Chris Tucker's doing this, or, or Chris Rock's doing this, just to compare what their social media look like, what their career platform like look like, and find out what is that lane for Steve Harvey to be successful right. in. And so so I'm sure when you're looking at your platform, it's not necessarily you looking at other donut companies, but what other right. are your favorite entrepreneurs that you look at as examples for a model that you can use in your mini donut empire? Well, first and foremost, Rashad, I gotta say quite truthfully, you're one of my 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 uh my, my idols, man. You're like the black godfather of business. <laughs> Thank you. The way that you take care of business, man, is phenomenal. You are an example of what black business should look like. You know? Wow. Um another one of my favorites, he's he's not here anymore, but Reginald Lewis. Yes. Mm-hmm. The black the black billionaire. Did you know he used to own Krispy Kreme? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. His conglomerate uh, owned Krispy Kreme. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's like an idol of mine, man. It's like the, the example of how to run business. Yes. You know, and, and I'm very fortunate to, to have people like you in my life mm-hmm. to, 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 you know, to show me how to do business correctly. Well, you know, the thing about it is that, and, I, and, and thank you for that compliment. Because my wife always say, when people compliment me, you, you must say thank you. And I'll be so embarrassed when people compliment <laughs> me that this show is right. about you. This show is about your brand and mm-hmm. putting the word out. And somebody compliments, it always catches me off guard. But I'm also always appreciative of it. But like right. when you post, a lot of times I just like your post. Or I comment, keep winning, uh, right. looking good. Because just saying, that's a, that, I do that a lot. Sometimes I just sit in my house or in my office. I just go through my timeline. And just look at mm-hmm. people, and I just give them, uh, I give them a, a fire, you know, look at some hand claps, or I'm praying mm-hmm. for you. So that's that that the, does that level of motivation when you see that? Does how does that make you feel, man? Oh, Rashawn, the very first time you called me when I was in Atlanta three years ago, mm-hmm. and I knew who you were. Mm-hmm. You know, I followed you, and you hit me up on Facebook, and you said to me, "Have you ever been on a Steve Harvey show?" I almost fainted. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> You know, and that's how our relationship started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it, it does, man. Motivation is, is great, man. People really liking your product, saying great things about you. Mm-hmm. And that's how I am, too, man. I, I, I shout out a lot of people, a lot of other donor shops and mm-hmm. a lot of other entrepreneurs. I think that's important because whatever you give out comes right. back to you. Well, you know, the beauty you know? of the beauty of your business and the beauty of you and your personality, you know, because you got to look. You know, and it's always about that's your brand. You know, when I'm looking at you on TV right now, this is your brand, which means that you have a you you you've learned from being in the corporate world, working for 
uh, small entrepreneurs, working for Dunkin' Donuts, and then stepping out on you. I want to talk about stepping out on, some people use the word faith, but I always tell, I always tell people when you step out on faith, you better have a plan with that, okay? So yes. talk about making that transition to believing in yourself from leaving a safe but successful corporate environment. Mm-hmm. Well, well, first and foremost, Rashawn, I got the idea from Cousins Dozen. I always give give a n- acknowledgement to God. And I say all ideas come from God. Mm-hmm. And if God gives you an idea, God's going to make sure that it happens. You just have to be persistent. Mm-hmm. You have to uh, uh, believe in yourself, which is very important, and know what's going to happen. You know, right, and give thanks for it in in advance, like it already happened. It's it's a God idea. Well, you know, the you thing know? about it is that I, I I hear that you know, but a lot of people, I want to say, put too much faith in God because you got to work, you got to get up. If like you said, you four a.m., yeah. you was making you was making eighty boxes of donuts, you know, <laughs> and so God woke you up, but it got to be work applied to the work. Because I always tell you, alarm clock may go off, but it didn't really wake you up. You know, God woke you up. But when you wake up, what did you do with that effort that he put into you uh, that, right. that, that that tells you you need to get up? Well, well, like they say, faith without works is dead. Yes. You know, <laughs> you can have as much faith as you want, but if you're not working, and, and you know, a lot of people say, yeah, you got to work hard. No, just consistently work. Mm-hmm. It ain't mm-hmm. hard. I'll be on my effortlessness. Right. Right. You know, let's, just let's, work. Let's, let's talk about this, Todd. You're not a one-man operation, man. Who is who's your team or, or, or some of your key members that have supported you all these years, that have supported mm-hmm. you now in a position? Because you're not going to be down here in Atlanta with your mobile truck making these donuts by yourself. What's going on with the with the with the with the Todd Jones Empire, the the Cousins Donuts Empire, Duncan? Well, well, you know, I have a whole uh, team of crew. I got the the donut princesses, my daughter. I got Pedo, which is uh, my friend Johnny. Uh, I, I have, you know, e- even though, you know, we're not partners no more, I have my man Easy Glaze to fall back <laughs> on as far as advice. You know, all my people got donut names, man. You know, and, and also, you know, I, I have on the team now uh, my coach, Stephanie Rowe. Uh-huh. Um, phenomenal woman, man. She's really, you know, uh, directing me on how to build this empire. Right, you know, so it, it's a it's a team effort, man. We all cousins. We all cousins. Well, you know, the beauty of it, if you're in the if you're in the Brooklyn, like we all know, he's he is franchising. But if you're in the Brooklyn downtown Brooklyn area, you know, cousins dozens been in there started it 26 years ago. I've been there. The beauty of when I'm talking to somebody and I call him a friend, I support him because first of all, he's delivering quality. You know, he sells the fresh hot uh, mini donuts right in front of him. Right there. You ask for him, mm-hmm. he's made on the spot. He has these cool little black boxes that he puts them in that you can walk around and eat them in the streets as you, or you can put them in your car, or you can take them to work and give them to some friends. He has cool toppings, but it's all fresh. And that's really what we're talking about is quality. And that's what your number mm-hmm. one selling point is quality service, great personality, great experience. Hey, cousins, dozens, correct? That's correct. Don't forget too, uh, Rashawn, the little donut stick I put in there. Yes. So they get your hands. Absolutely. See, see, I, I, I got to admit, you send me like six of them, okay? But I'm mm-hmm. from the country, Houston, Texas. Okay, Houston, Texas. <laughs> see, see, that's for people who, you know, in the streets, right. walking around in public, the little sticks, right. you know, you just put it in the box, you know, daintily put it in your mouth. 
Your boy, yeah. like I told you, ate 15 donuts. <laughs> I would have to tell you this, Todd. I didn't mm-hmm. use your stick, brother. Okay. Even on the yeah. little glaze, because the glaze is wet. You know, right, I, mean, I, right. I just put it in my mouth and licked the little glaze off the tips of the edges of my finger right. and went on by my business, okay? It, it's donut etiquette, uh, Rashawn. I don't That's know. I, I don't know, Tom. I don't know if it's donut etiquette. All I know is this. I knew I could not eat the wet donut before I ate the dry donuts, okay? So I started with the dry. I started with the powder. Then I went right. over to the cinnamon, okay? It's right. an order to my man. The people say, Rashad, do you just eat? No, 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 no. See, when you are a, 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 a dessert nut like me, and I have right. to say I'm a dessert. People call a foodie. I'm a dessert foodie, okay? I'm going to put the word okay. foodie behind dessert. So when I saw your stuff, because Samantha, she's you know she's my executive producer. She always see me get delivery. She always little nosy, you know, <laughs> want to know, oh, did, 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 did you get the donuts from Cousin Todd? Yeah. And I just stared at her. Cause you know it ain't gonna be yeah, and I'm all, and I'm sharing, okay? Yeah, in silence, okay? Yeah, I got him. Well, I, I'm gonna send Samantha her no, own no, box. No, 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 no! Don't, don't you do that! Don't you do that! Don't you do that! <laughs> See what you what you can't do with cousins mm-hmm. does. This is my relationship. See what you can't do is you cannot <laughs> piggyback off of my hard work. My hard eating, right. okay? Okay. So when she when the donuts came down here. To Atlanta, Georgia. That's where you shipped it from Brooklyn, New York, mm-hmm. to Atlanta, Georgia. Ride fresh. Right. I right. got my two boxes, put them in the refrigerator. She's looking around the corner because, you know, her office <laughs> is next to my kitchen. So she peeps a lot, okay? <laughs> like, she, I put it strategically. Everybody knows. You can ask anybody that works for me. Do not just mm. go in my refrigerator, Todd. Uh-uh. Right. You have to you. have a purpose. Because, see, you go in the refrigerator, I may be standing behind you because you can't be Ooh. stealing my donuts. So we taped the show, Rashawn's Kitchen. I asked I asked her for permission. I said, if it's all right if I do Todd's, you know, the donuts is my my example. Because I want people, what, what, what I realize is that a lot of people send me food, pralines, mm-hmm. and I'm going to make that a section, a segment of my show. And I introduce right. you as my premiere episode where I invite people who are young small businesses or franchising right. type businesses like yourself to introduce you to my audience is like 2 million homes in the Atlanta, Georgia area. It's mm-hmm. internationally. So I definitely want to get the word out about what you're doing, Todd, because you're such a, an amazing person. That's, that's right. important to me. You have a great product. That's very important to me. And you're consistent and that's key. And if are those the traits that you're trying to sell and trying to promote the most when you're doing cousins doesn't talk. Absolutely. Um, That's why it's very important when I uh, get franchisees that they're able to follow instructions because we want them to have that same experience wherever Cousins Dozen is. If it's in Japan, I want you to have that same experience. You know, consistency is what people look for. Again, let me just fill everybody out. Todd Jones, he's been in the donut-making game for over 45 years. Hear me out on that. He started Cousin Dozens 26 years ago. He has a mini donut shop in downtown Brooklyn, New York. They sell hot, fresh mini donuts made right in front of you. I was a customer. I was there. I know. They have toppings like glaze, which I just told y'all. That's the wet one right there. Then the sugar cinnamon. And then the funnel. If anybody loves funnel cake, they know what I'm talking about. That powder. And when you eat the donut, I kid you not, it just kind of like melts in your mouth. That's what I'm talking about. And then if you if you want to be a little, you know, naughty, as they say, he has donuts for grown-ups, you know what I'm saying? Hennessy flavored, you know, Chirac, all good for that. 
So, so you're gonna make it big on that, on the, make it make it happen big. You're one of my favorite entrepreneurs that I interview on my show on Money Making Conversation, Todd. I want to thank you for taking the time. I know you got up, did all those donuts, but you still took time to promote your product on Money Making Conversations. There's one question I got to ask you, Rashawn. Okay. How do you stay so clean after eating powdered donuts and cinnamon donuts? Here's the funny no. part about it. I'm gonna tell you Dude. something. I'm gonna tell you something, Todd. I, I wear all black on my show. When I tape, I, I people ask me all the time. I don't wear no apron, okay? I right. I know how to lean forward and eat, lean <laughs> forward and eat. And plus, you have an order to your mat. And now, see if I just went in there grabbing it with my hand like this, I got piled all over my hand. That can get on your clothes. I go right. in with my little finger. That's why the the stick is cool, but it also can like flick. You know, say it can flip. <laughs> see, that, see, see, I, you have to listen to how I think now. So I'm right. not going I can't take that risk. So these fingers I can control, pick up that little old donut, pop it in my mouth, go for round two. 15 straight donuts, <laughs> nothing on my clothes. You see it on the show, Rashawn's Kitchen. You'll see it. Rashawn, when, when, when you do invite me on the show, I want to come down there live okay. and make live. Well, you know what, you know what I'm gonna do? Because you know we 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 can zoom live. Well, I'm a, I'm gonna do a zoom from your location in Brooklyn. Can we make that happen, Samantha? Yeah. Yeah, we'll do a live from your kitchen and and, and put it on the show. That's what we should have done this time. But next time we'll do it. Okay. So when you when you when you're about to come down here to do the mobile uh, pop up uh-huh. in Atlanta, before that we're gonna do a live into your location in the Brooklyn store. Okay. Sounds great. Sounds great, Rashawn. Cool. Looking forward. To- looking forward to always looking forward to talking to you. Thank you for coming on the show, Money Making Conversation. I appreciate you, Todd Jones. Cousins, dozens. Appreciate you too. Thank you. <laughs> you are now tuned into the Money Making Conversations Minute of Inspiration with Rashawn McDonald. Following Tamron Hall's bittersweet exit from NBC Today Show more than two years ago, a lot of people wrote her off, and some said it was a mistake to leave the show. Well, Tamron Hall has overcome the odds and now hosts one of the hottest shows in daytime talk. Most important to me and for me is that folks who are at home watching know what they're getting. They're getting a real conversation. I hope they're getting smart questions. We are looking for substantive ways to make our lives better as people, as parents. The human experience is a common thread. At the end of the day, I don't want someone keeping me from my dream. I don't want someone, you know, standing in my way. I want inspiration. I want to be a better wife. I want to be a better daughter. I want to be a better mom. And so that's a big part of what we talk about on our show. Tamron Hall's full interview is available at moneymakingconversation.com. Keep winning. In this season of giving, Kohl's has gifts for all your loved ones. For those who like to keep it cozy, find fleeces, sweaters, loungewear, blankets, and throws. Or support minority-owned or founded brands by giving gifts from Human Nation and Shea Moisture. And in the spirit of giving, Kohl's Cares is donating $8 million to local nonprofits nationwide. Give with all your heart this season with great gifts from Kohl's or Kohl's.com. Every year, compliance regulations change thousands of times. And every year, ADP makes thousands of seamless platform updates so businesses can focus on everything else, like running their business. Grow stronger with ADP. HR, talent, time, and payroll. The Black Effect Presents features honest conversations and exclusive interviews. A space for artists, everyday people, and listeners to amplify, elevate, and empower black voices with great conversations. Make sure to listen to the Black Effect Presents podcast on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.